everyone remain calm. Back for more, huh? Oh, yeah. Ooh, ah, that's how it always starts. But then later there's running and then screaming. Somebody talk to me! What is happening? Welcome to Jurassic World. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the Jurassic Park Podcast. <laughs> How long is it going to take for that to spread around the globe? This was all John Hammond's dream. Hold on to your butt. Seriously? Well, we're back. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 273rd episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss... All things Jurassic Park. In today's episode, we are wrapping up Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park inside the Jurassic Park book club with Ben. And uh, it's a bittersweet moment knowing that uh, that is a wrap on the read-through of Jurassic Park. It has certainly been a fun and fulfilling journey, and uh, at least it has been for me, so I really hope a lot of you can say the same. This book is always something really... um, compelling to return to time and time again and I I do think that it is a novel that you can continually get more and more out of each and every read through and certainly for me this time uh, that was the case and I've been really trying to compare and contrast and and just really get down to the bottom of this novel and it has been so so much fun so I'm sad to see Jurassic Park go but the future holds uh, many books for Jurassic Park fans so stay tuned for all of that in the future but in the Jurassic Park book club today we obviously we have Ben the host of the segment but Ben has brought on Jurassic collectibles he brought David here to discuss this novel with him as well as our buddy and friend uh, contributor on the podcast here Tom Jurassic so Tom also joined Ben and David to discuss this novel, and I am I am very, very excited for that. Uh, I think their conversation is going to be awesome. I'm really excited for you guys to hear that. And then, of course, at the end, we get to hear from all of you as well, the people who sent in their thoughts and uh, and comments and concerns for this book. I, uh, I'm always very thrilled to hear your thoughts and insight on this novel as well. And as always, we do have a long episode for you today, but before we get into all that, I want to take care of some quick business. So going straight over to YouTube, last week uh, I did a toy hunt where I was able to track down the Dennis Nedry set, so I, I showcased that on the channel, and it was like one of those moments in the store where I was not sure if I wanted to get this thing or not, so you'll have to watch to find out. Oh, no, that's kind of a... That's a, that's a lame spoiler attempt because I'm going to ruin it right here. I also did a review of a toy that I picked up this week, which was the Dennis Nedry Jeep uh, getaway pack. Uh, so I did end up picking up the Nedry uh, vehicle pack there. So I, I debated it for a while. So you can check out the, uh, the toy hunt featuring Nedry and then the toy review featuring Nedry and that Jeep as well. Also, I did a live stream, which I do every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Uh, this time, I was talking all about Velocicoaster. I think there were some other topics in there as well, uh, listener comments and questions and stuff like that, but overall, it was all about Velocicoaster because uh, they started doing team member previews and then uh, annual pass holder previews, and now... 
we're seeing it currently where it's it's open it's i think it's open daily now for soft opens technical rehearsals so that's amazing to see so i went through all of the details all those spoilery uh little tidbits that you might might or might not want to know so depending on uh, what you want to take in as far as the cues concerned and the ride experience there's a lot of really really fun stuff in there and it's more than just a coaster there's so much uh, to the queue of this thing to the the different launches and all the fun stuff in this thing so please go check out that live stream and then this week I do have another toy hunt for you guys and then another review so toy hunt on Monday a review on Friday and then a live stream Wednesday night 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time I don't know what I'm gonna be discussing but I never know so please stay tuned to uh, tune in there and see what we're talking about but I think that about wraps it up for now in the intro here we have a long episode for you guys and without further ado let's dive into the final edition for now of the Jurassic Park book club I wish Dr. Grant were here. He'd write the most amazing article about this. You need that guy? You got your nerd book. I appreciate that. It was kind of preachy. Yeah, Sheffield Campfire stories with my uncle. No, did you read Malcolm's book? Just the parts they didn't like. I read your book, and then my teacher told me about this other book by Manning Backer, and he- I read both of your books. I like the first one more. Oh, it's two things that we have in common. Malcolm coughed and stared into the distance. Let's be clear. The planet is not in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. We haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it. But we might have the power to save ourselves. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of the Jurassic Park Book Club. Today, I'm joined by two legends of the Jurassic Park community. David, founder of Jurassic Collectibles, Tom Jurassic, also of Jurassic Collectibles and the Jurassic Park podcast. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing good, thank you Ben. Thanks for setting this up for us. It's really nice to have a chance to talk about the novel for a change. I'm really excited for this. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, thanks for joining me guys. Uh, The first question I have, uh, which I've asked the other contributors that I've spoken to over the other two episodes, is... How were you first introduced to Jurassic Park in general, and what came first, the movie or the book? Tom, what about you? Okay, so I am obviously a lot younger than everyone else, if my voice didn't give it away. Um, And I found Jurassic Park off the back of a British sci-fi show called Primeval. Um, which was all about dinosaurs coming through rips in time. And it got me really into um, dinosaurs as a whole. So I then went and explored what other material was out there, um, found Jurassic Park, which at the time was in a bit of a lull because this was before Jurassic World had come out and it kind of restarted things. Um, And I rewatched the three films there, finished the third one, and then like a year later, everything around Jurassic World started and it's been going ever since then um so very much started with the films and then kind of went back and revisited the books and kind of got to see the distinctions between the two all right okay cool so you you've come at it from certainly from a different point of view that i have yeah what what about yourself uh, david 
Uh, I think I was introduced primarily to the to the film uh, back in '93, and then uh, the novel naturally followed uh, with the kind of signature Jurassic Park sunset cover that was tied into the release of the movie. Um, and I've still got the same paperback that I, I bought in W. H. Smith's in 1993, and uh, yeah, treasure it. I, I love the story. All right, okay. So, so both of you come at Jurassic from different points of views, but we all share, you know, a, a common love for both the novel and the movie. So we start. We we ended the last um, episode of the book club at the fifth iteration. Um, so we're we're going to go from the fifth iteration today right through to the end, um, and we start off with Muldoon and Gennaro in the Hadrosaur paddock, um, looking at the devastation that the Rex has caused, um, and they come across the the dead Hadrosaur there. I wonder, Tom, what were your feelings about this part of the book? Yeah. Um, so I really like how in the book in general we kind of get a much greater sense of Muldoon as a character um, and that's especially prevalent here where he's kind of looking at the Hadrosaur um, I think there's some droppings nearby as well and he's looking at them and kind of piecing together what happens um, and Gennaro's saying something along the lines of we know the re- maybe the Rex didn't kill this animal and then Muldoon explains why behaviourally I can't even say that word but basically why because in its behaviour pattern it would have been the Rex that did that so I, I think it's really cool just throughout this uh, Muldoon feels like a much more three-dimensional character obviously he has the whiskey in his lap a lot of the time he's written as a little bit of an alcoholic which is quite interesting um but also he feels a lot more knowledgeable and i know that's an issue that people always have with the film where they say well Muldoon should have known that the raptors would trap him why did he just go and get killed um and here you get a sense that he's much more knowledgeable about these animals that he's tasked with protecting yeah, I'd agree completely with that. You definitely pick that up. And he has a sense of humour about him as well, yeah. doesn't he? It's almost like a sort of a, a dark humour, like a sarcasm about the position that, that he's in. And I think he almost enjoys the fact that Gennaro's a bit of a rookie yeah. um, and scared about things as well, doesn't he? But yeah, he, he definitely has a, a m- much more of a part to play in the novel. What, what were your thoughts on this part of the book, David? Yeah, it kind of really puts you in the position of of being Gennaro, really, in the in the jeep next to him, um, because of his kind of confidence and explaining everything. He is like the exposition, uh, and and Gennaro is really the one who who doesn't know what's you know what's what. I, I love his familiarity with the with the Tyrannosaurus Rex and and the way he explains it. Really, kind of paints a picture of realism that he really knows this creature inside and out. Um, and also kind of like a, a feeling of like he's not really afraid of it. Uh, you get a feeling of his confidence, which isn't a good thing in a way because he shouldn't be too confident around this killing machine, essentially. Um, and he's kind of quite flippant about the way that he's going to treat it. Um, so, yeah, I, I really like this part of the book. And I, I, I like the kind of feeling of being out, kind of outside, because up until this point, you've been behind a lot of screens. Um You've been seeing things at a safe distance, whereas here now we're we're out and about in the park, off road, and I, I really like this. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that as well. You definitely feel like you're almost first person all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can feel the environment. I like the way Crichton writes as well. Like the paddock feels like it's a hot environment to me, just in the way that it's described. He doesn't necessarily necessarily say that it is, but the way that he sort of 
uh, it sort of builds a picture of the, the the environment that they find themselves in and i just think that this this part of the book really starts to take things faster things start to happen quite a lot more quickly a lot yeah. of malcolm's worries and concerns start to sort of realize themselves and they they play out quite quickly one after the other and this sort this is the sort of bit that kicks off um because of course we get the call from arnold and he sends them over to nedry's jeep um which is where they managed to get hold of the rockets um which feeds into another part of the story the fact that they've managed to obtain those again a couple of little bits i picked up on it that i just sort of thought were tie-ins to the movies or even the toy lines is they pick up the hadrosaur's foot and he has a uh, um, uh, reference number tattooed on the, so- the, the sole of his foot and uh, that's a bit like the toys that we get from Mattel yeah. now so I wonder if that's something that they you know they took from there we also learn things like each embryo is worth between two and, and ten million uh, pounds so you get the feeling of the value of these things and why Nedry was so keen to to get them you know to get them off the island we also find out that one of the details I quite liked was that the Dilo spit doesn't actually kill you. There's an anti-venom for it, yeah. but it blinds you. And that's actually how he gets killed because obviously, you know, it blinds him. And we get that in the film as well. You know, when he spits in his eyes, that's why Nedry bangs his head on the Jeep there and falls over and, you know, meets his demise. So I thought it was quite interesting that that's taken from the novel, that, that this, the venomous spit doesn't necessarily kill you, but it causes you the pain. So, uh, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed that part of the book. I then like the fact that they can't find um, the Rex and they can't find the kids. And Malcolm has a bit about saying that the motion sensors clearly aren't picking up all, all areas of the park. Yeah. And they've effectively made sort of almost like access roads for humans and dinosaurs and whatever to move in and, in and around the park and get from A to B without necessarily being seen. Um, and then that takes us to uh, Grant in the river, uh, in the in the raft with Lex and Tim, um, and they they see the Avery, and I wondered what your thoughts were about the Avery scene, uh, Tom. Yeah, um, so I I just wanted to go back to um, the motion sensors for a minute because I think that's a really interesting point that you kind of begin to get more prevalent throughout the fifth iteration right through to the end and that's the fact that people have underestimated this park um and the living animals within it so they think that just because they've put them within this specific paddock that's where they're gonna stay and so you can tell that right from the offset they've only ever planned for the contingencies of them being in that paddock they've never kind of asked themselves the what if questions um, and so that kind of starts to create this sense that they were really underprepared with what they were getting into. Um, and that's then fed into perfectly in the aviary where you learn that they had this whole plan to have like a... Um, it's almost like a treetop villa in there where people could see their... Um, Ceredactyls, because they're not pterodactyls in this one, and um, they could like see them through their windows and kind of watch them feeding, and then they realise that actually they're really territorial and they're really aggressive, and so they just attack the building rather than letting people watch them peacefully, and it it kind of shows again, I suppose, the naivety it's present throughout the novel, which is the idea that because, like you say, something is worth so much money 
we can plough through with messing with it without actually fully understanding what it is that we're messing with to begin with. And then that that kind of gets into really what I think is the ethical heart of Jurassic Park is this ongoing story, both in the films and the novels, which is kind of all about moving with science before we fully take the time to understand what we've discovered. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. They, they, there's a lot of that happening, actually. A lot, a lot of the stuff that we get from Hammond is also about the sort of the greed of the place, yeah. you know, throw money at it, set it up and it's going to work. There's a whole bit later on in this part of the book where we talk about the simplicity of the park and why it shouldn't, shouldn't work. And Malcolm picks up on a lot of that later on. But you're right, with the Avery, it's, it's, the Avery's an example of that, really. They've created something, they, they've put these animals in there and they just expect them to behave in a certain way. David, what were your thoughts on uh, the raft uh, discovering the Avery ahead of them? Um, I mean, it's quite a brief uh, moment in the, in the novel, um, but it's such a nice um, kind of brief encounter with, with the Cerodactyls. And what Crichton quite often does is he kind of leaves you on these nice little cliffhangers that mean that you can't stop reading the book. And um, one of them is about the the status of the lodge, and um, Arnold kind of says, you know, I, I, at least I hope they're not there, you know. And you're like, why? What, why? What's wrong? What's wrong with the Avery? And then you learn about, you know, the the lodge, and and then there's that that wonderful moment when Grant's almost ad- admiring the Cerodactyls as they come down, um, you know, typical Grant fashion, kind of seeing the beauty of these creatures. And then, uh, and then they start to attack, and it's only, it's only a few pages, like three or four pages, and then they're out. Um, but I think that's, like we said, I think that's probably inspired the Jurassic Park three entire sequence with the with the pterodactyls, and that's quite a you know a huge part of Jurassic Park's identity. Um, yeah. So it's it's just nice to kind of have that moment where you're like, wow, this really feels like like that sequence, but just kind of shrunk down and, and kind of uh, just baked down to a, to a simple little sequence in the book. Yeah, yeah. That you, what you were saying there as well about the um, where they take that from Jurassic Park 3, I noted that um, the design of the Avery in Jurassic Park 3 doesn't have any glass. When they, um, what's the chap called, Mr. Kirby and Grant, they dive into the water there and swim underneath the, the frame of the Avery. And then the Tyrannodon sort of flies in and throws his beak through, but he can't get out because the bars are too closely together. Um, we get a reference of that in the novel because there's no glass on the on the Avery, and um, and, and Grant says, "Well, that, you know, it depends what they've got in there." So that leads you to to think that there's something, you know, there's something quite big in there. And just picking up on that point you were saying about um, Arnold saying about the problems they've had with the with the Cerodactyls. What's interesting about the way I I see that Crichton writes that is he introduces the fact that Grant and the kids have seen the Avery. Then we go back to the control centre and hear about the problems they've had. So before we even get back to Grant and the kids, we already, we're already aware that they're in a potentially dangerous position. Yes. And I love the way that he, write, he, he writes it in that way that he, he, we, you don't just enter into the problem. He sort of foreshadows it and builds, gives you some knowledge about what's coming up in front of them. So that... That's really cool. They, they then we then get over to Malcolm and Ellie, and we get a, a little bit from Malcolm. He's he's talking about a thing called thin intelligence, which is a love a, a lovely word that he you know a phrase that he coins. Um, and then he he starts talking about how 
the unpredictable the unpredictability of uh, what's going on on Jurassic Park and also we get some quotes directly out of the movie or nearly directly out of the movie we get the the, the line about a rape of the natural world um, and we also get a version of um, that you know they were so preoccupied with whether whether or not they should they didn't stop to, to uh, could they didn't stop to think if they should so we get those they've they've been directly pulled out of the novel and, and put put straight into the movie so they were quite nice to read then we, we, we then, obviously, we've had the attack in the Avery. They've escaped, and the, the Ceredactyls have taken the uh, Lexus baseball mitt, and that's how they eventually escape. One thing that I found a bit strange about that sequence is Grant is described as suffering quite a bad attack um, from the Tyrannodon, and I always thought he, he sort of seems to be okay after the event. There's no real reference to him suffering from that, so that was something yeah. I picked up. It didn't I, the way that it was described initially. Um, that he was like a, a, in a tent in a windstorm or something like that. I thought he, you know, he's, he's really getting. It's like claws it, properly tearing through his back, isn't it? Because he feels yeah. blood going down there. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, and then when I read on, I thought they, that sort of just drops away. Really, he's just. It does. You know, that, You're right. That would be a problem, wouldn't it? I would imagine in most cases, but it makes me wonder if the Avery sequence was was cut down from a larger sequence, like like a large, and maybe that's why the foreshadowing explains the lodge so that you don't have to kind of do that whole exploration of the lodge and find out what it is um i don't know but it does feel like yeah he suddenly doesn't have that injury anymore does he get attacked by the raptor later on as well does yeah he? he does yeah so he's like he's like dying <laughs> he's, by the end yeah, he's, <laughs> he is really he's like he's getting fully kicked in by these <laughs> by these dinosaurs and he's like he's just brushing it off i think by the end of the uh by the end of the book, he's just like he's down in the raptor nest there, and he's perfectly okay. <laughs> he's so. like quite a gruff guy in the books, though, isn't he? Because he's got yeah, like a burly. beard, and he's quite burly. Yeah, 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 and and uh, he's got the the Hawaiian shirt on as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was quite contrast. cool. It's like a Nedry mix-up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. I, I, I spoke about this in the last episode. It's quite. How do you guys? Um, how how do you guys process reading the book characters and having the um, the visuals of the characters in the film like Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and so on? Tom, what how do you are you able to create new characters in your mind when you're reading the novel, or do you sort of default back to what you know from the movies? I think I yeah I definitely default back to what I know, and then it's quite weird like you say when a Hawaiian shirts reference because suddenly this image of Grant in a blue denim shirt disappears, and you're like. Oh, Sam Neill doesn't actually look that bad in a Hawaiian shirt. Um, but there's like there's moments where I feel like the book characters kind of shine through because like a, a really good example, and we'll talk about it later, is the ultimate fate of Hammond. And I, mm. I don't think I could ever picture Richard Attenborough playing a character as so bitter because he feels so almost compassionate in a way in his portrayal of Hammond in the film like towards the end you really kind of see him break and I guess his humanity wins him over and that's just not the same in the book so I feel like for me at least Hammond's one of the characters who like I have to separate because I can't picture them being the same yeah I think if Richard Attenborough had that sequence with the compies we'd uh, we'd all be scarred for life wouldn't we yeah <laughs> to be honest with you <laughs> But yeah, well, absolutely. It's it's de- it's definitely like you say. It's easy to it's easy to imagine the characters, but then when they start to veer off, or you get bits of description that don't match, it's 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 trying to sort of 
place the the characters you know in in the places. How do you do? How do you deal with that, David? It's funny. I I do actually see Grant as the novel version in my mind because it's so literal in the book that after that introduction, that's how I picture him. But for uh, Tim and Lex, their ages are reversed. So Timmy is older and Lex is younger. And because of their personalities in the book, I I visualize them almost how they are in the, in the movie, but just with different ages. So so Timmy is, is taller and older, but the same actor, Joe Mazzello. And, uh, and Lex is Ariana Riches, but like I imagine her being just younger and more childlike. So yeah, it's funny uh, how you do kind of... And, and Ellie, I think I do see her as, as uh, Laura Dern, really. So it's only where, where the, the, the description in the book really, really contrasts what you see in the movie that I see them differently. And Grant is so, so different to the film that I can't help but see him in a different way. And he's yeah. also a different character. There's different things. His relationship yeah. with, with Ellie is different as well. So. Yeah. And towards the kids as well. And towards the kids. He loves kids. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I can't help but see him differently. Uh, Malcolm. I, I see Malcolm differently as well. I don't know about you, but I see Malcolm less flashy, more kind of... Um, more maybe, maybe what you'd call it nerdy, like mm. all clad in black mathematician i i don't see him as um attractive maybe as he's painted out to be in in the movie maybe he's not as attractive as that i don't know yeah like but, he's really into his own science in a in a sort of very academic way yeah i don't see him as such a kind of fly character as he's portrayed in the film yeah. i i picture him more as fallen kingdom malcolm not literally because they pull some quotes from this and use them in Fallen Kingdom, but I, I feel like here he feels like like an older version of the character, like he's already got a lot more life experience underneath yeah. him, and he kind of already understands the context of the situations he's in a lot more. Yeah, he's much more grave in FK. I'm Fallen Kingdom, sorry. It's it's uh, definitely... Um, yeah, he's much more... Yeah, he's he's lost he's lost that bubbliness that was in the first film that that sense of humor. Yeah. Um. He's not, he's very dry by the time you get to Fallen Kingdom, and I'd say that kind of aligns with how he is in the book. He's uh, he's he's very much um, focused on his um, on his theories and and nothing else. He's very serious, very grave. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is true. And also, he's been I suppose in the movie he's, he's been through this arc of being the kind of cool. Uh, funny, sarcastic scientist guy. Then he goes into the lost world where he knows the fate that awaits the people on the island and he's he's much more um, critical and worried about there. He doesn't want to be there, basically. And then he goes through that whole experience and it's kind of like that leads us to the Fallen Kingdom, Malcolm, almost, where he's been been through the whole process of of being on the, on the island, facing the majesty of it, then it all goes horribly wrong. Then he has to relive that effectively yeah. in the second movie, and it's kind of like it's worn him down almost. Sorry, Tom, what were you going to say there? No, yeah, I, I think that's spot on. Um, he's kind of like he's gone through it so many times in the films that he, yeah, he's just broken down by it all. I think yeah. it's interesting here how. Convict like how invested he is in his own conviction because I from the way he's written I get the vibe that he's the kind of person who is so 
invested in believing that he is right, that if yeah. you were to kind of encounter him and have interactions with him, you just think, oh, he's full of himself. He he just thinks yeah. that he can't do anything wrong. So you're kind of set up to discredit him because he has that kind of almost narcissistic personality in a way. But yeah. actually everything he says is fully accurate. Yeah, you, we, when we were chatting earlier, David, you were actually saying, just picking up on that point Tom made, that he, uh, there's a line in, um, I think it's, is it Jurassic Park 3, where um, Eric Kirby says about him being preachy. Um, mm. And you were saying that, you know, that's a little bit how he comes across in this novel towards the end. Yeah, it does feel like a lot of uh, Crichton's kind of uh, theories or uh, opinions on, on the way that science uh, kind of... Uh, treads wrongly in in certain um areas of discovery uh is kind of all all summed up here in in lots of malcolm's morphine induced speeches yeah um and he really goes on about you know all this stuff it's almost like um like a forward or an epilogue uh surmising Crichton's thoughts he is almost yeah. like the voice of Crichton coming in, the critical voice of Crichton. But he, yeah, in Jurassic Park 3, when they're in the overturned truck and they're talking about Ian Malcolm, and uh, he says, oh, yeah, I thought Malcolm's book was a bit preachy. I'd say that this third act of the book, he's definitely preachy. So it feels like it's a little joke about how he comes across in the book. Yeah, he also spends the this third of the book in bed as well yeah. <laughs> he probably has the least physical action out of everybody in the, in the, in the story true. from this point in. but also quite horrific because uh, later on as we, when we get to it he's faced with two uh, raptors trying to bear down in, on him from the roof yeah. so uh, he's not he, he never finds himself in the best position really does he no a couple of notes I made just about this uh, bit when we're on the river here um, I like the fact that um, before we go over to um, Malcolm and Ellie talking about the, the whole bit about the, the rape of the natural world and all of that stuff we hear the hooting so grant yeah. and the kids they don't see the dilos yet they just hear the hooting but we as the reader we already know the fate that Nedry faced uh, at the hands of a dilophosaurus so it's quite it's another clever way of Crichton introducing the fact that the dilophosaurus are ahead of them and then he moves away and he kind of leaves us thinking knowing that they're going to go around this corner and be faced possibly with the same problem Nedry was faced with. So I quite like the way that that's, that's written. Um, it leaves it a bit open. And then when we do eventually face the Dilos and they, they in fact turn to, to the wrecks, don't they, to fend the wrecks away. I love that bit of writing where the boat gets snagged on the bank or, or yeah. on the mud. The tension, I really feel the tension when I'm reading that part of the novel. Like, you know, you're just thinking, please move on, please move on. You know, you just need the current just to take you that little bit further away so you can carry on down the river there. Because if they get snagged there for too long, you know, either the Dilophosaurus or the Rex are going to eventually turn their attention to them and then they're in all sorts of trouble, yeah. aren't they? So, so that's cool. And then we move over to uh, Muldoon and Gennaro. Um one of the little things I liked is there's a there's actually a monitor in the jeeps in the novel as well as the explorer, so they're able to see the data on where the animals moving around the park. I thought, thought that was quite a nice little details. Um, but they they get the uh, the call from Arnold to say that he, he knows where the Rex is. He's at the river, so then they pursue the Rex and we get the whole sequence where um, Muldoon tries to trank trank the Rex. I wondered what your thoughts were about this bit, Tom. Yeah, um, I think it's a really, really cool sequence. I 
Yeah, I mean, just going back to the monitor in the Jeep, this is something that I mentioned to um, David beforehand. I thought it was really, really cool, kind of how it adds that extra level of technology. It's familiar, but was actually quite advanced at the time. Um, it just kind of goes yeah. to show how this park's next level. Um, but one thing that really stood out to me with the sequence where they're trying to trank the Rex is the fact that um, Muldoon actually gets out the Jeep and kind of kneels down to properly aim the rifle. And even when he misses his first shot, he still takes the time to load and fire a second one. And you kind of get this sense that, Again, like I was saying earlier, this is somebody who's quite confident in what they're doing. He f thinks he knows how to deal with this animal. Um, and obviously we get a little back and forth where it seems like maybe he's missed it. Maybe the fact that he's been drinking whiskey this whole time has meant that his aim isn't as good as he thought it was. Um, but then you ultimately find that he did hit the wreck. So it kind of, it, it creates this really nice reinforcement of Muldoon's character, I guess, as this expert in his field. Yeah, and you get a bit of the expert um, knowledge where he's um, explaining, I think he says about a hippo, um, an elephant, a hippo and a rhino. Yes. You know, they're all the same size, but you hit them with the same amount of uh, trank. They'll all behave in a different way because yeah. their temperament's different. So, like you say, it's like another insight into his sort of background and the knowledge that he has. And maybe, I don't know what you think, David, that almost feeds into his um, sort of self-confidence that we were talking about earlier. Yes, he definitely feels overconfident uh, in his understanding of all animals and how that might apply to the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park. Although he even says that these are dinosaurs and really we, we don't have much idea of, you know, I can, I can guess how much I should use in this trank, but really I, I don't know. I think this amount will do. Um, uh, and then he, you know, he goes with that. He uses his intuition, but yeah, you do get the feeling that he's, you know, very confident in what he knows. Um, what I like in this part is actually the description of the Rex, because I feel like the novel Rex is different to the to the movie Rex. You can kind of superimpose the way it looks, maybe, but I get the feeling that the way this dinosaur moves, like it talks about it kind of um, trying to get into the river and it's moving down the river and kind of going in between the trees and poking its head in. And this, I try to imagine the Jurassic Park Rex doing that. And I, I, I kind of, I can't quite reconcile it doing that without looking funny. So yeah. I, I always kind of end up feeling like the way that Crichton describes the Rex in, in the book is a little bit more clumsy and a little bit more kind of um, not as finessed as the way the T-Rex moves in Jurassic Park. Um, so I get a little bit of that here. I get the feeling it's just like a big lumbering oaf and it kind of makes mistakes and it's a bit scuffly. And that I feel like the book kind of describes that well here, the way it's kind of like trying to get its head in to try and look into the, to the river. You can kind of imagine this big dinosaur like just trying to edge in. <laughs> so that's how I feel that that bit describes it. But yeah, I, I, I love this whole bit, the bit with the tranquilizer um, and the way that he kind of thinks, oh no, I haven't got it. And then they have to make a quick dash for it. Um, I, the, that's quite exciting yeah, because you kind of just think, oh no, that T-Rex is going to come after you now. Yeah. You, know, you, you, you kind of hope that he's done it right and that he's got the right measurement in there. But then, yeah, it seems to go wrong. I quite like the way that's written, actually, when they're chase he's chasing after them and you've got Gennaro trying to floor it. And I like the, the hood bouncing up and down so they can't even oh, see where they're going. Yeah. 
it, I could really imagine that because it's almost like the car isn't going anywhere. You know, yeah. you've, you've floored it and you've basically floored it up a little hill and you're just midair, hung in midair, and you really need to be going forwards. So yeah. It really adds kind of tension and suspense to the T-Rex kind of getting closer and closer. Um, and also earlier on in the sequence, uh, earlier on in the book, um, Crichton foreshadows, I think, the speed of the T-Rex. Yeah. And how it can very easily outrun the Jeep. So you're already aware of how close this T-Rex might be to them. Um, so yeah, yeah, I really like that. Interesting you say that, actually, because one of the, the sort of pickups I took from the, the, the novel sort of that feeds into the movie is we, when uh, Crichton's writing this particular bit, he, he references them looking in the rearview mirror at the Rex. And I know it's the side mirror in the sequence where Muldoon and uh, Muld, um, Ellie and Malcolm are trying to get away from the Rex in the movie. But that kind of reads in the same way that he's pursuing yeah. them and they, they look in the rearview mirror and then the, the Rex takes a final roar and walks off, you know, moves away. And that's mm. very much the same sort of thing that they were they were trying. It feels like they were trying to go for when uh, when they're trying to escape the wrecks in the movie. There, he's pursuing them and gaining on them in the mirror, and then they, they manage to floor it, move away, and then he, he takes his last roar and, and moves off to the left. The other bit as well that I sort of I, I don't know whether I just see too much of bits of the movie, but with the way that um, Muldoon gets out of the jeep and gets down to take the shot and then takes the second shot is a bit like Roland Tembo in the in the Lost World there yeah. where the in the campsite where the one Rex has chased the others off down the pathway and he's just left with the other Rex trying to take it down and him loading the trank there and kneeling down to take the shot and we get that white flare of dust come out of the the gun oh yeah and it, yeah. It's, it's written in a similar way so I don't know if maybe that was you know taken from that uh, and placed into the movie there. Another another little bit, which I feel is quite important for the next part of the story, uh, we get a little bit where um, Muldoon is telling Gennaro that uh, that all of you know the dinosaurs, like you were saying earlier, they're they're not they're not birds, they're not lizards, you know, they're they're an animal of them themselves. But he also goes on to say that the 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 raptors are really smart. And that the problems that they're currently experiencing are nothing compared to if the raptors got out. Yeah. And I just thought that's brilliant because he's basically setting us up for a bit later on when the raptors get out. Because he he's our guy who has all the knowledge. He's built Muldoon up to be the guy who knows how animals behave. He's experienced these dinosaurs since day one of Jurassic Park. And he's the one telling us that you don't want the raptors to get out. So it's kind of like he's already built up the fear factor and then when they when we eventually get the raptors out we already know you know the trouble that we're going to be in yeah. so i quite i quite like the way that he foreshadows that bit i um, think you're already thinking it's quite chaotic at this point as well so you're kind of sat there like whoa if this, if this is nothing compared to the raptors how bad are the raptors gonna be yeah yeah also he forgets his uh he hasn't charged the battery has he no, um, and that was I quite like that because that feeds into Malcolm's kind of like you know you're not really in control because little yeah. details like that can make a huge difference to to whether or not you know he can get the battery in the site to make sure that he's hit the wrecks or not. The fact that he hasn't charged it that's a human error, but that could eventually cost them. Yeah, we then uh, we then go back to the river, um, and this is actually one of my favourite parts of the novels. So I'd be really interested to. Um, hear what you guys think. We've got the the waterfall sequence, so it's quite a long bit here. Um, starts off with them approaching the waterfall, 
and ends up uh, with them in the little golf buggy heading through the tunnels back to the visitor centre. So, Tom, I wonder what your thoughts are on this whole bit of the book. Yeah, um, so I like how it's quite suspenseful with the wrecks underneath them. Um, and I, I, I kind of like how throughout this whole thing, Crichton's constantly paying, like playing with your expectations. So first you think Lex is dead when there's a bit of like her life jacket in the T-Rex's mouth before you realise that she's floating away behind it. Then you think Grant and the kids are separated because the door's locked and he's on the other side. And then you think the Rex is going to get them through the waterfall. And then ultimately the Rex collapses because Muldoon did in fact shoot it. So it's going like back and forth on your expectations and you never quite know what's going to happen because it's it's almost like that constant unpredictability of chaos where there's so many different variables at play. Um, But I think my actual... My my probably my favourite thing about this whole sequence is the infrastructure and the fact that it introduces yeah. the maintenance tunnels because I think that's a really cool thing to think about with the park. But also the fact that the waterfall isn't natural because I think that says a lot about um, Hammond and his kind of jaded perception of natural beauty that he even felt the need to meddle with something like a waterfall which is... Um, I would argue one of the most natural forms of beauty that a lot of us kind of look towards when we think of nature and he's even meddled with something as contrived yeah. as that on the island. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the water, that really, um, when I read that for the first time, I just did not expect for that to not be a natural waterfall. Yeah. You know, when when the power goes down and, and that's, you know, that's the thing that stops it from flowing over the edge there, that completely threw me off because I just wasn't ready to read that and definitely with the wrecks um well actually before i say a bit about that uh, david what what's your what are your thoughts on the whole waterfall sequence i mean this this whole um part of the book is it's really upping the stakes in terms of the peril there's so much peril in in this short sequence um you've got the waterfall um you know them going trying to stop them from going over then they're over as they're just about to go over they see that the t-rex is down below waiting for them Oh, I mean, it, it just keeps on, you know, adding on all these threats and perils. And I, I, I don't know, I, for me, and my heart is like racing at this part. And then when they fall, you're like, oh, no, they've had it. That's it. Because they've fallen down the waterfall and the T-Rex is waiting for them. They managed to get away. And then you think the good thing to do would be to move away from the wrecks. But no, instead, they move back sort of towards it, but along a yeah. little path. And your expectations, like Thomas saying, your expectations are suddenly kind of, you know, thrown away. You, you, you don't know what's going to happen. They go behind the waterfall, which is a cool concept in itself. And actually, there's a small moment when um, Alan discovers the door and goes inside and gets locked in. Yeah, <laughs> and, I know. And, and, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, of all the things that could happen now, this is happening. It's gone wrong. Uh, and he just expects that the children will eventually work out the door and he had to you know dial in a code that he found outside to get through this door and i'm like i don't think the kids are going to work that no. out so you're, you're constantly engaged with thought processes of of how dire the situation is um and he constantly bring like raises the level of how how frustratingly 
perilous it is. Um, and I love it. I just feel like when he was writing it, he wrote first draft, it was like, they fall off the waterfall. And then he's like, okay, they fall off the waterfall, but the T-Rex is there. Okay, yeah. so now they've escaped the T-Rex, they walk away. No, they don't walk away, they go back towards it, and they go behind the waterfall, and then the T-Rex comes through the waterfall, and Alan gets locked in the door. Like, it feels like he's lumping on more and more stuff. And I, I, I love it. It's just, I, I'm so in the novel by this point that I'm not even reading it. I'm just in the world. Um, it's so well written and, and so um, Moorish at this point, I think. That's a really good point you make. You're, 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 you're in it at this point, aren't you? Yeah, you, really you can, in it. You know, you get that description of Grant falling, uh, like time slows down and there's no noise. And then he gets that cold smash of um, hitting the deep water, you know, the cold water at the bottom of the waterfall. And you, yeah. you can actually feel that, can't you? You can almost feel your breath um, going from you as you're actually reading how that's described. Yeah. And then he leaves Lex behind. So he pulls Timmy out of the water, mm. but Lex isn't anywhere to be seen. So you're like, oh my goodness, what's happened to Lex? Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's so good. Uh, it really keeps you interested and there's just so much peril in this bit. Um, yeah. You just even doubt, you know, if they're all going to survive. At that point, you think Lex is gone. You know? yeah. yeah, you do, yeah. And the also, it's it's clever how he actually... Because Lex, throughout the book, is is she's a bit of a rebel you know she knows how she should behave in certain circumstances but she's you know she coughs when she, when they're on the lake or she speaks when she shouldn't when they're approaching the Dilophosaurus and things like that and it's funny to think that she doesn't have her life vest on and I can just imagine it's because she just doesn't want it on and as it happens that's actually the thing that saves her in the end because it's yeah. the it's the yellow vest that the Rex fixates on and, and, and attacks and that's in fact what gets her away because she'd have been in that vest wouldn't she yeah, if she'd have had it on. That's a good point, so, yeah. So it's, it's just the way he's he, he just writes those little things in that don't seem to matter at the time. You know, because he says, doesn't he, Grant, Grant looks across to, to Lex and sees that she's clinging onto the vest. And you just think, well, that's just that. But then later on you realise that, that that's probably the reason she survived it. Yeah. So there's some, there, there is some brilliant writing in there. The bit that gets me the most about the waterfall scene is the bit with the tongue that wraps around Tim. Yeah. And it's almost like a sort of an anaconda moment where it's kind of restricting him and he can see, but he can't speak because it's oh, over his mouth. Yeah. And it's slowly pulling him in. And when I, I think that's the single most invested part of the novel for me. I'm so in that moment fearing for Tim. And when I first read it, I thought, how is he going to survive that? From this actual point of in reading, how does he go from being um, constricted by the tongue of this massive Tyrannosaurus Rex drawn into his mouth how's he going to escape that and of course again we've had the the trank dart that we think missed kicks in so it's just one of those things that's been placed much earlier in the story that comes to bear fruit and mm. saves Tim effectively yeah that that yeah. part is so descriptive as well the 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 tongue being around him he said like he feels the hot breath and yeah. then he can smell the ammonia yeah. On on the tongue, are you just you are put right there. You just yeah. you you are wrapped in this horrible raspy tongue, and it's oh, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's interesting it just, as well because he quotes it as being forked, which would have been of the time, I would imagine, wouldn't it? But there would have been the expectations at the time, possibly. Yes. Of a t of a T Rex. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. That I mean, is it? Is there paleo evidence now suggesting the, the other, otherwise? Is there? I guess it's not going to be reptilian like uh, it's going to be more bird-like. 
I'd guess. imagine so. I'm not entirely sure, but I think mm. I think the science at the time might have been more than it could be. So mm. it's just interesting that he, that he writes it like that because we get um, we get a couple of scenes that I find similar to that in the movies. There's the Lost World sequence where the Rex puts his head through the waterfall mm. and the the snake goes down Burke's um, vest there and he gets dragged out by the Rex. That's um, right. And you also get that sequence with um, Gray and um, Salk. Thank you, Tom. In the in the little shop bit with the Indominus, and he's reaching in. It's not his tongue as it happens; it's his claw, and he gets the yeah. belt bag, doesn't he? And he's mm. pulling him out like that. And when I watched that for the very first time, I immediately thought of that waterfall sequence with Tim because it's that kind of like the impending doom and mm. the fact that you're just being slowly drawn into this, you know, your demise basically. Mm. So yeah, I, I love the way it's written. The other cool thing about the waterfall stopping um, is that the door opens. To Grant, yeah. So I think that was quite cool. What were your thoughts on the on us meeting the juvenile Rex there, Tom? I thought it was quite cool. Um, I think it's um, so. This oh, we're talking about the one in the tunnel, aren't we? So it's the raptor. Yeah, that's um, right. Sorry, he, Grant goes through the door there, doesn't he? And yeah, he, he and then he finds it, and he. I I kind of like how they make you em- empathize for it. So he shoots it with the tranquilizer gun and then yeah. he instantly realises that it's too high a dosage and it's probably dying. I think it, it kind of like, it, it helps to break the illusion of these being monsters and it really has that moment of reflection where like the kids are sad about it as well and you realise that these are just animals that are behaving how animals would and actually none of them asked to be put in this park and be put in this situation and it kind of again adds to that kind of um, I suppose the overarching theme of Hammond being this sort of um, puppet master if you like kind of orchestrating everything and overseeing it and ultimately he's put these animals in here against their will and they're just as much pawns in this park as the humans are yeah they're just another another part of the puzzle aren't they yeah what do you think about this bit david yeah it's really good this is for me this is like the equivalent of uh, grant stumbling across the eggshells in in jurassic park because he sees this evidence of of them breeding because it's a male isn't it it's a male uh baby raptor yeah so so this is the point when he realizes um not only is this proof of a young dinosaur that's bred out in the wild but it's actually it's changed sex which would enable it to breed um so that's interesting in itself um and and yeah it's kind of it's it's not so um I don't know. I feel like a, a spotlight kind of comes down in the in the film version, and it's kind of like they're breeding, and you know, this is a male. Uh, sorry, well, these are the eggs of the dinosaurs breeding. But in the book, it it seems more of a, a a quicker moment, kind of not to focus on it too much, so that they can talk about it again later on in the story. Um, this is just like a, a a piece of evidence. Like here's a piece of evidence. We'll talk more about this later. Yeah, um, and I like that. I like the way it's dealt with, and also the fact that he discovers this tunnel, which is basically like a shortcut to the end of the novel for them, because this tunnel yes. represents, <laughs> you know, a way out completely. Um, but it makes sense as well, and I, yeah, I like the way that the waterfall is a facade and fake, and then it makes sense having a door there and a tunnel down. I, I like it. It kind of feeds into the industrial underbelly of, of Jurassic Park that makes it so kind of intriguing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point you, you made there, actually. It never really occurred to me that, that that is a very quick and convenient way of getting them back to the visitor centre, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's obviously, you know, Crichton was trying to solve, how can I do this last stretch to, to the visitor's <laughs> centre? And I guess he was thinking maybe, you know, the raft will come across the visitor's centre. But I like this way because it takes you into, you know, another part of the park that you're not aware of. And it seems plausible as well. Yeah. Um, you know, despite being very expensive and exhaustive to make, um, yeah. it it also makes sense given the kind of grandeur of Jurassic Park. Yeah, well, I can't it, imagine it, what the actual cost of that would have been, as have been in the, the entire yeah. island. Yeah. I mean, it's just unimaginable, isn't it? Yeah. It adds a lot to kind of how unprepared they are as well, because when you think about it, it's a tropical island so you would expect there to be very varying weather and their utility vehicles are electric powered yeah so it shows that they've gone for grandiose things and kind of the 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 fact that it's described as a golf cart especially kind of you know that kind of more upper echelon and sort of um kind of like that intricacy about it that doesn't reflect the practicality that you would expect them to have on Nublar. They've kind of gone for style over substance, and so that means things really begin to unravel. Yeah, and yeah, it's so... a bit like a hidden, a hid, sorry, it's a bit like a hidden <laughs> part of the of the park, and they've got something really sort of threadbare, like a like a, a golf a golf yeah. buggy underneath. There's like a bit that you wouldn't ever see, you know. But like yeah. even those core fundamentals aren't built to survive. The mm. island itself. Yeah, it feels so like a they, film studio or something. Yeah, it? like the back they, of a like a like you know an old lot behind a studio. Exactly, they've like not thought about the practicality of it. So even the people who are meant to be doing the job of maintaining it, eventually something would go wrong there. So it's like the inevitability of chaos, which is something that's present throughout. Yeah, that's true. Something we discussed in the last episode was the sequence where Muldoon goes down to the garage and there's only two uh, gas-powered Jeeps yeah. for the staff, but there's like, I don't know, 15 or 60, I can't remember, loads of the explorers for the tour guests. So yeah. It's the same thing. They've put all the, they've invested all the money and the time and the, the finesse, like you said, Tom, into the, the stuff that they think is going to make them the money, but the important mm. stuff, the actual infrastructure things, the things that are actually going to keep things running smoothly, they're less concerned about, you know, there's less of a priority placed on them, isn't there? Yeah. What's interesting about this bit as well, another one of my favourite parts of the book, there's so many in this last bit, but before the actual waterfall stops, we actually get the the, the big bit in the control room where they realise, Wu realises that the system's on auxiliary power. Yeah. It's flashing orange on the monitor there, and then it flashes to red and counts down from 20, and that's the moment that... Um, Arnold realises since he rebooted the park, he's been running the whole place on auxiliary power all the way through. So that moment just reads like, oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, all this time you've you've we as the reader, we've just presumed that they're back in business and they're getting things back online. But actually, all of a sudden everything goes off and the lights go off in the visitor centre and the control room and everything shuts down like the waterfall and you just get I just got this feeling of like almost like impending doom like the power's gone how are they going to get it back if they've been running on auxiliary power and that's run out they've got nothing to fall back on what did yeah. you feel about that bit of the book Tom? 
I think it kind of it feeds really nicely into that theme of naivety as a whole because you you think about it Arnold is presented as this really really capable technician and engineer and this whole time he hasn't noticed that it's an auxiliary power so it it kind of shows how um people everyone in the park is so dependent on its infrastructure that they just expect it to function how they would expect um, and nobody in the book appears to be prepared for things to not go as they would expect. And it's kind of that whole, I, I guess, again, that very core fundamental concept throughout the novel, which is this idea that the illusion of control means that we often don't notice um, when things are beginning to fall apart until it's far too late. And it's kind of... Um, sort of laid bare here with the fact that we think we've been in control of this park the whole time but actually we haven't and I, I think the thing that really underpins that for me is the moment where Arnold kind of has this oh moment and realises yeah. that the fences have been off this whole time so while yeah. Muldoon and Gennaro were out there something could have walked through and attacked them at any point and they were vulnerable and yeah. I think that kind of really underpins the fact that at this point they're very much at the mercy of Nublar and not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about that bit, David? Yeah, it's it, like Tom says, it's just that moment of realisation where the fences are down as well. And Muldoon's like, what about the raptors? That's all he cares about, it's like the raptors. And uh, he's like, yeah, they're down too. And he's like, what? And then... They like cut to him hearing screams down the hallway. I yeah. love, I love that because it's just like you know, the raptors are out. Oh, they're already here. <laughs> I just love the way it, it, it's just instantly on them. The problem is is here at their doorstep already, um, yeah. and it's just yeah, it's it's horrifying. I mean, it's it's like you know. I think I was waiting for this bit in the book because I always remembered that there's like a double. There's a double incident. There's an incident, and then they realise, oh no, we've been doing something wrong all this time, and it's and it, and it happened, and it gets instantly, you know, you know, terrible. And I, I was, I didn't know if it had already happened, um, but at this part in the book, because I started at the fifth iteration, and I just thought, oh, maybe it's already happened. And then when it when it came, I was like, oh yes, this is it. This is the part when it all goes the bot. Yeah, and it's just yeah, such a kind of scary moment in 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 the, the this is this is the moment when the raptors, which like you say, they've been foreshadowing all this time, are out and they're loose, and um, yeah, it's just brilliant, just a very uh, scary and exciting part of the book. Yeah, turning point. Like you say, it's already it's been foreshadowed so many times. We've had the bit when that we were talking about earlier, where Muldoon's saying, you know. These are these these problems we've got now are nothing compared to if the Raptors get out. Yeah, and, I, and, and also takes us right back to right at the very beginning when they're taking the tour of the facilities and they have to go outside while the boat docks or something along those lines. And that's when they go around to the chain link fences with the Raptors yes. and they experience them attack from the safety of being on the other side of the fence. And the way that whole thing's written really sets them up as these lethal killing machines. So we then. We're faced with this position where 
we now know that the power's gone down. Like you say, David, we hear the scream. And what's interesting, there's a little bit of... Uh, they cut over to the lodge where Malcolm's talking to Hammond and they're constantly falling out throughout the rest of this book. Um, Hammond pretty much despises Malcolm. But during that conversation, we also then hear the scream from their point of view as well. And that kind of makes you aware of the fact that these problems are happening all around, all of the buildings around yeah. the park. So it's like the whole thing's gone to, gone to pot. Then we get the uh, uh, Muldoon sort of engages his brain and he's like rushing around the room giving everyone orders. You know, you do this, take these walkie-talkies. He's handing all these things out to everybody and telling them what to do. And he, he asks uh, Gennaro if he wants to live dangerously again, which I quite liked. <laughs> uh, I like that sort of the, the humour that he, that he brings with that. And Gennaro initially doesn't want to be involved, but then actually joins them in the end because he realises... Um, they're in quite a bad situation and they, they all need to kind of get on board with trying to resolve it. I love the way that they both, uh, both Muldoon and Gennaro, as they come out of the building there, they see Arnold backed up against the maintenance shed with three of the raptors yeah. sort of coming oh, yeah. in, you know, very much in that stalking, um, hunting uh, pose that's been fed to us, which we also get in the movie, don't we, with Grant at the very beginning with the turkey the turkey yes. kid it's, you know, how they come in from the side so it's described again the three of them coming in on Arnold and then we get the sort of rocket launch a bit where he's falling over the, the weapons and Muldoon manages to get one off and it blows one of the raptors to pieces Muldoon um, sorry Arnold runs off to the maintenance shed there and I love the fact that because the power's out there's no light in the building so he kicks off his shoe yeah, uh, uses it to wedge the door open, and I particularly yeah. enjoy the description of the the different sound of his feet with his tre- his shoe yeah. in one and his sock on the catwalk. Yeah, it, it kind of and the coolness of the feeling of the building, the cool air coming up through the the, the stories of the maintenance shed, it just kind of takes you into that environment, and it feels it feels like he's entering an intimidating environment and you you i can't help you can't help but think with without even reading it that potentially that's not going to work out too well with him i don't know what you thought about that bit tom yeah i think um so <laughs> you're going to like this on my notes i've literally just written for this entire section the battle for jurassic park is awesome because um, that, that's literally what it plays out as. It kind yeah. of becomes this war zone. And I think it's re- really, really cool how this sequence sort of juxtaposes the initial introdu- introduction to this resort as this really kind of fancy high-end attraction. And now you've got people in the lodge hearing explosions. You've got screams. It kind of does a full 180 and completely transforms it from this place of tranquility to this place of absolute chaos and it chaos, is kind yeah. of it, it it is at that apex now where chaos is fully present throughout everything and kind of i feel like throughout the novel you're sort of on the precipice of chaos and they're kind of slowly reeling it back at points like you think the power's back on you think the only thing they've got left to do is contain the tyrannosaur and then it's sorted and then suddenly you dive over the edge with all of this stuff unfolding and i think it just it really immerses you in that sense of okay this is a really bad situation i need to deal with it now and i think um 
in in particular the point you made about Arnold taking off his shoe to let light in really resonated with me because I think that's such a human mistake to make that you're in the face of danger you've literally got something on your tail that wants to tear you apart and you're so focused with trying to solve another problem that you completely forget about the wider picture and it's just like it is that fundamental human error which again going back to what I keep droning on about is something that can't be predicted so it's all these little variables and these little actions that people make that ultimately causes this to play out in the way it does and really reinforces all of the dialogue that Malcolm has throughout this sequence as well. Yeah, it does. It definitely goes a bit crazy at this point, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, like you say, up until now, we've always had a a background feeling of safety in one way or the other. So they're in a vehicle or they're traveling downstream or that, you know, some things are happening, the power's coming back on or something. And then all of a sudden the power's out, the raptors are out, there's screams, there's noise, and basically they're all in a lot of trouble, aren't they? It all, yeah. all hell breaks loose. What do you think about this whole sequence with Arnold there, David? Yeah, I think it's really good. I think it's, you know, the action is kicking off. Um, one thing I was going to say is when the raptors... Um, when they spot the raptors, uh, you know, going for for Arnold. Um, again, with the like the book and the film, I feel that the raptors in the book are slightly different. I feel that they're actually mm. much more coordinated and almost in a mathematical way, because the way the book describes them is that they come head on and then start fanning out at the same time. Yeah. Now the book describes uh, them kind of staying in formation as they fan out. So I would get the feeling that. The raptors come forward as three, and then the two split off to the side, but they're all keeping their like distance from you, and that's how they're I'd imagine them. Socially distanced. Socially distanced. Very good. <laughs> but in in the film, I get much more of a sense of you're distracted by the one in front when two come from the side really quickly. Yeah. Um, whereas, so I, I in my mind, I just see the behaviour here as much more sort of mathematical and geometric and almost bird-like because birds do move in almost like a robotic fashion so I see them much more like that um, so I, I always like that bit and then also you discover that they can jump in this bit mm. because Arnold goes down into the maintenance shed and he thinks that he's okay because um, he's gone downstairs a bit like Daleks um, yeah. he thinks that the stairs will, will stop the raptors yeah. from coming down to get him and then all of a sudden, boom, thud, and it's and it's down on the ground next to him. And he's like, wow, it jumped really far. And this is the first time we learn that they can really jump. And it comes in again later on when they're outside the visitor centre and they can jump up yeah. like the second floor. So, yeah, I love the descriptions of, of the raptors that we're getting here um, and how smart they are. But, yeah, I do get a different picture of them uh, from the film. And also Crichton keeps uh, saying, compare, saying that they're pale. There's a mm. lot, of, lot of descriptions of them being pale as they as they come through. Um, so I imagine these very sort of pale uh, creatures moving very bird-like and very almost like um, very rigidly, mathematically. I don't see them moving in quite an animalistic way that we see in Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's quite. It's quite. That's quite an intimidating way of writing it as well, isn't it? Because of yes. the fact that they're approaching you, like you say in the film, that the well. We call it the big one, don't we? But is drawing uh, Muldoon in, and the others are sort of stalking in from the side there. But whereas That's these right. guys are actually all out going for Arnold, aren't they? They've, yeah. 
they've seen him and they're 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 going after him. Yeah, it almost makes them a lot more aggressive. Yeah, like, they don't like feel mechanical. the need to be cunning. Yeah, yeah, it feels like they've done this so many times that they're almost like little robot drones that are just splitting off from the main body of the drone and going off to the side. <laughs> um, that's the kind of feeling I get from from Crichton's description, and that feels actually more bird-like. That feels right. Like yeah. if you can imagine birds, you know, stalking something, I can imagine them sort of splitting off mathematically and going off to the side and, yeah, just being a, a lot more kind of mechanical in their movement. Yeah, they t- uh, Crichton talks about the dinosaurs throughout this novel in, in quite a bird-like way, don't they? Yeah. Uh, doesn't he? And it, at the time, scientifically, they were still sort of toying between birds, lizards, and, you know, it was less clear, um, mm. you know, the science behind uh, the dinosaurs and the the way that they're you know their bone structures were and all the rest of it but it seems like he was quite in line with the the view that they were quite bird-like yeah he does yeah. and he describes their stiff tails as well yeah and he just says that you know they're very their, their posture is very bird-like and yeah i just get the yeah. feeling these are kind of just large birds yeah yeah well it all starts to go really wrong here doesn't it because we we, we then go back into Wu, who's in the control center who can't do anything because there's no power on uh, he, he picks up the radio and he gets something from Muldoon and Muldoon, which I quite like this really, he's backed himself into a pipe, uh, well, wedged himself into a pipe. And I love the fact that it writes that he doesn't know what's at the other end of the pipe. So he's not entirely sure whether he's going to, you know, he's going to get bitten in the backside. Um, I yeah. thought that was, quite, that was quite sort of typical of Muldoon really to find himself in that situation. I like the fact that he blow, he, he shoots one of the raptors, but he, don't, he only thinks he's taken its leg. He, he wishes he'd waited for it to duck in and, and put its head in. But we, we we've lost Gennaro at this point. We don't. Nobody knows where he is. So Muldoon and Wu come up with this plan to head off over to the to the lodge, really, just to regroup and try and come up with some sort of a plan. Because earlier we we learned that they've only got six shells and there's eight raptors. So mathematically, you know, they're going to struggle to take them down. So they they all go over to to the lodge there, uh, which is a nice bit. And then of course, as they disappear, Grant arrives back at the visitor centre. So uh, they shoot up through the, I think they come out in the garage, which was quite a nice detail because that yeah. kind of makes sense, I suppose, doesn't it? To to run things from that building. So you wouldn't necessarily need to take those vehicles outside. You would you would just have the tunnel coming up into the building there. So I thought that was uh, that was quite cool. And I like the fact that they, they come up the stairs and realise that, that actually things are a real mess and everything's trashed. We get the dinosaurs ruled the earth plaque and the animatronic dinosaur t-rex that's been turned upside down on itself uh i think i'm right in saying he then takes the radio and he gets some correspondence with gennaro um yeah actually no i think i've got ahead of myself haven't i because gennaro then goes into the maintenance shed doesn't he and trips over arnold's shoe uh, and then he he has an encounter with the with the raptor in which the raptor actually bites his hand. There's a reference to it. He's reaching out because it's dark in there, isn't it? Yeah. That reminded me a little bit of um, Vic Ho- Vic uh, Hoskins, is it in Jurassic yes. World, where he's reaching out to Blue there, trying to sort of. It's, it's a different context, I, I know, but it kind of when I when I remember watching that scene in Jurassic World, I I you could almost feel the pain that that w- that he would be feeling at that moment yeah. in time when that raptor bit over his hand and I imagined that fate for Gennaro uh, but we don't hear that he's actually died so that's always in the back of my mind you know did he did he make it in or did he did he not um, and then Grant has to go in after 
after Gennaro to try and get the power back on because he's basically the last hope because everyone's gone back to the lodge. So I wondered what your thoughts were about that bit and the fact that he places the kids in the uh, cafeteria and basically leaves them in that building all on their own, which I thought was quite odd. Yeah. So what, what were your thoughts about this whole bit with Grant arriving back at the visitor centre? Um, so one of my favourite details in this bit is the fact that at this point Isla Nublar is covered in a very thin mist because um, yeah. I feel like that almost shows that all of the nature on the island is against the humans and it kind of goes back to Malcolm's statement about the rape of the natural world where the natural world's kind of fighting back at this point and the entire ecosystem's crumbling in on them. That's a great um, point. I, I just think it's a really nice subtle way of showing that even the environment there is against them. Um, I think that this whole sequence is kind of Grant trying to make the best of a bad situation and I can see why he would leave them in the kitchen area um, because, or in like the dining area um, because traditionally that visitor centre has been the safest place for the people to go to. Um, and I, I feel like at this point as well, he probably doesn't realise just how bad things are because obviously they've been on the river raft ride, or not the ride, but they've gone down the river on the raft. Um, yeah. Although it would be a cool ride. Um, and they've kind of like experienced everything. So for them, they're probably like, it can't get much worse than this at this point. So he's like, okay, I'll leave them here. They'll be fine. I'll go and do this. And then we're sorted. And I think you kind of as you spend more time with Grant and he gets this realisation as to how bad things have gotten, it kind of really underlines it to you um, as the yeah. reader, especially when you think um, in the context of that emergency shed with him going into it as well, it's this one objective that so far has incapacitated two people. And now if he doesn't get in there and get it done, it is literally game over. It kind of really elevates the tensions and the stakes. Yeah, absolutely. And we get a bit of, um, in the movie, it's Malcolm, isn't it, telling Ellie how yeah. to get through uh, the system. But I think it's Wu, I think I'm right in saying, who's telling Grant how to, to, yeah. get, to get to the to the power source. I also, so I, I do want to point out another interesting thing that I noticed with this bit, um, which is the fact that they've only got one person to do each job on the island. So Wu is like the scientist, but he's also the computer guy, so he knows the computers. Arnold knows all of the engineering systems. Um, Nedry was obviously more of the coding guy, and it's just like one person for each of these specialisms rather than a team. Um, mm. So going back to what you were saying earlier about them not investing in the infrastructure, you really get that feeling here where you think, well, if any of these people suddenly get killed... They're screwed. Nobody's going to know what to do. Um, and I think that really underpins how the lack of preparedness here ultimately causes everything to unravel. Yeah, it's like you say. I mean, Harding's effectively the doctor here, isn't he? Because he's yeah. looking after Malcolm, but he's he's actually a trained vet. They don't even have a doctor on the island. There's not even an infirmary or a hospital, Yeah, uh, you know, built for, for looking after people. But again, it's the short-sightedness of the park. They're so preoccupied with making sure it looks lovely and everyone enjoys themselves. They haven't thought about the really important stuff, like what if that person can't do their job? You know, what what if someone gets in trouble or, 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 or for, for, you know, is, you know, like now when everything's going completely wrong you lose one person and that breaks the chain and then yeah. then they're really struggling to get things back together what do you think about this bit david 
I think the sort of helplessness of the characters really sets in with um, Grant having to leave uh, the children. Um, there's a moment when Lex is like, can we talk to you on the radio? And he's like, no, I need to take it with me so that I can talk to the people in the lodge. And you feel mm. like, oh, these poor kids, you know, they're being left alone. They can't communicate with Grant. And we know as, as the reader the, how helpless they are and how bad things have gotten. And like Tom says, Grant isn't really aware at this point of what's going on in the park and how bad things have got. Yeah, sure, the visitor's centre is a mess, but he might think that this is something that happened and is now over and, and you know, yeah. and, and power's restored to the park now, so it's okay. Uh, but we know that they're, you know, they're in a lot of danger with the raptors and... Um, it's only afterwards when he's walked away that he starts communicating on the radio and realizing how bad the situation is. Um, but yeah, and also I get a feeling of isolation, the fact that the visitor center is now empty, that the yeah. m- most of the characters are now in the lodge in their you know, relative safety, and the children are left alone in what would be the like home attraction, the biggest attraction, and probably the point of safety normally. And yet here it is, like almost barren of life, apart from the two kids and a load of raptors. So it's like, it's really isolated and scary. And like Tom says, the mist is coming in. Yeah, I just feel like it's it's really bleak and helpless at this point, especially with Grant leaving them. Um, so yeah, the sort of the feeling of peril quickly sets in again. Even just that conversation about the radio just gives me chills because it's like the idea of leaving the kids alone and them having no way to communicate with you. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just quite scary. And I think it being a kitchen is is kind of important as well. It's sort of like the kitchen is like the heart of the home. It's sort of, you know, it's usually where you get your grub and you, you're kind of, you're safe. You know, you've got your mum there and yeah. she's going to cook for you. And then here it is turned on its head and made sterile and uh, corporate and, mm. and and they're alone in it. Yeah. So yeah, it's just interesting the space that he's making. It's real gloves off time as well, isn't it? Because you know you you don't forget, but it's easy to forget that Grant and Lex and Tim have just come off this horrific journey through yeah. the park. They've had that whole yeah. waterfall sequence that we've discussed, which you know for children of that age to, to go through just to go through that would be yeah. absolutely awful. And then moments later, they, they find themselves completely alone in yeah. this ripped up place we've got the security guard he's been killed there's the power's off and they're just they're just you know they've been effectively abandoned it because through necessity because grant's got to go and do what he's got to go and do so you yeah. can imagine that that would be absolutely awful wouldn't it it's it's horrifying and i guess grant is thinking well at least they've got a bit of food i think he says vending machines or something he sees something yeah. there yeah so he thinks well at least they've got food and amenities and he probably thinks the visitor centre is staffed or there's people upstairs or, you know, it's it's safe now. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, you know, you know the reality of how dangerous it is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's cool. And also with you guys mentioning the mist, that kind of leads us on to the next bit. I mean, firstly, it's kind of a bit of a Cloud Island reference, isn't it? Because, you know, we get that much earlier in the book about how the mist comes down. But Tom, your your point about how nature's—it's not just the animals against them now; it's the actually the environment. Yeah. You know the the fog and the mist coming in, and that leads us perfectly to the the bit that we get at Hammond's Lodge, which I mean I love this part of the book. It's it's such an excellent bit for Ellie in particular, I think, where they're having to pull the raptors away from the visitor centre in order for Grant to try and get the power back on. So they we have this whole sequence where Ellie baits the raptors. 
and I love the way that it's written how he how she has to leave the the fenced area and Muldoon opens the gate and she's 20 yards out and she laces up her trainers and all of the suspense that's built around that whole part of the the descriptions of that that whole those whole events you've got the two raptors on the roof there and then you've got the three raptors that they've drawn over from the visitor center back to the to the lodge there they attack and then it all goes you know it all goes chaotic again doesn't it what's yeah. what are your thoughts on this whole part at Hammond's lodge i think the the whole time this is all happening you kind of have this impending sense of peril because you know at this point that even the fences being there they're not electrified so they're not going to stop them and um the fact that at this point if i'm correct there's already the two who are slowly trying to chew through on the roof as well yeah um so you know that they've got the bite force to bite through the metal as it is and you're kind of thinking well even if Ellie's on the other side of that, if one of them was to jump high enough or bite through it, she's still quite exposed. So you're already thinking, okay, she's not that safe as it is. And then when she goes through that gate and goes out into the mist and it's kind of described as them suddenly attacking her, it just really increases this sense of vulnerability. Um, And you realise that... these animals are things that can't be predicted or reasoned with because it's there's there's this moment where she assumes that she's got a moment before they're going to attack her like she thinks that they're going to wait and they're going to behave in a certain way to attack her and do the maneuver they did on arnold and then they just pounce straight away and she's not expecting it and i think that kind of um puts the sense of danger into overdrive because you're kind of like okay these things are literally not going to stop until they kill somebody at this point yeah yeah absolutely what do you think david about this part it's um it's a completely different sequence to anything in the film in terms of like the environment that they're in uh the the mist setting in um the way that they need to bait the raptors it's it's completely different to anything that's in the movie so i'd say it's kind of like prime material for using in Jurassic World Dominion, if they if they get a chance, there's quite a lot there to use. Um, but yeah, I, lo- I love the moment when Ellie's kind of walking out, you know, courageously to tr- you know to act as bait, and then they come, and it's more like the film where they just come unpredictably from either side. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just again, it's just full of peril, and um, I'm just digesting the book at this point because there's so much peril going on. You've got the raptors on the roof biting through the bars. Um, you've got um, Wu's death. I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about that as well here, but go Wu's, for it. Wu's death is, I mean, I mean, it's horrific the way yeah. he, he just, he just, it's, he's looking out the door essentially. The raptors just grab him, and then by the time I think it's Muldoon gets outside. Yeah. He's already like, you know, his intestines, his, his, his stomach is open and his intestines are being eaten and he's still alive. And it's, oh, it's, I mean, it's horrific. It's like yeah. the Nedry death, uh, yeah. but, but more brief. Um, and yeah, you just really feel like, um, you just really feel sorry for him, I think. It's, it's such a horrible way to go. But also at the same time, Wu was always the one who was you know, confident that they could revise mm. these creatures and, and scrap them and start over. And here he is getting his sort of comeuppance, I guess. I think there's yeah. a, f- a few moments before his death, don't they sort of go inside his head and we have a bit of introspection of yeah. how he sees the progression of the park from here. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's yeah. this real like it's a bit like Hammond is at the end, where it's just yeah. it's it's just this sort of complete blindness to the to the overall situation and thinking it's okay, we'll be all right, we can still recover from this and this'll be changeable and we can we can get back to how we were. And it's it's just completely short sighted. It's yeah, just and, not not seeing how severe the situation is. Yeah, and then he literally, you know, dies moments after that, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like his his arrogance is is uh, you know his his fatal flaw, really. I didn't um, see that coming. I'll be honest with you. When I was reading it, I didn't anticipate. Woo! He's just like you say. We have this very sort of deep um, few few lines of text about how he's thinking about the future of the park and. His achievements and so on and then all of a sudden he i mean it's brilliantly written where yeah. he, you know ellie turns around and realizes that he stood in the doorway and before he even realizes mis- i think Crichton writes before he even realizes his mistake you know it's yeah. too late sort of thing um and it, it's a really chaotic moment isn't it because he he gets killed and it's graphically described Muldoon closes the door so all of a sudden ellie's abandoned she's now on her That's own right yeah i love the way that he writes that she just turns on her heel and just runs she doesn't even stop to think about what's just happened. She's just, you know, she's straight out of there. Yeah. And one of the details, which I thought was really clever, is earlier on in the book, we get Muldoon. I think it's Muldoon. When the raptors initially go on the roof, the two raptors, he makes a point about we must have planted a tree too close to the lodge. Yeah. So that's he's already right. explained yeah. that that's how they've got onto the roof, which, again, is one of those careless human things. Oh, you know, we'll put a tree there and it'll look nice. But they haven't yeah. thought about the fact that they basically put a ladder up onto the roof. Yeah. Yes. But when when he's describing Ellie running, um, she I can't I haven't got it written exactly how it's described, but she jumps up onto the log and kicks up to get up into the tree, yeah. and that was very reminiscent of the sequence in the movie where she's running towards the bunker there, and oh, she has yeah. to jump over the log and swing off the branch. Good so point. I felt I felt like that was. The way that it's written felt like it was directly translated into the movie, although it's in a slightly different context, Yeah. Um, even though it's still raptor-related. Yeah. And, of course, that immediately, because you already know that the raptors have made it on the roof before via the tree, you know that they're going to be on her on her tail straight away, don't you? Yes, um, yeah. I love when she jumps onto the roof, she scratches her face on the gravel. That just... It it, play, it makes me feel like I'm involved. You know, it's like a first-person experience. You can yes. f- almost feel her um, scratching her face on the gravel there. And it, again, another really clever thing that Crichton does is, you know, she's banging on the door there on the rooftop and realises it's locked. And that in itself is horrific because what's she going to do? Then she runs away and we have the, the moment where she just blindly jumps to try and make that 10-foot leap into the pool. But of course... Um, Harding has heard him, heard her knocking on the door, which you're not yeah. really you're not really aware of that until he, uh, Crichton writes that Harding comes out and you know shouts for Ellie. Yeah, yeah, I, it's very that, real yeah. world that I thought. I thought that was very real world, like that would happen because you'd, you'd yeah. be knocking on the door. But in the no, in the novel, you wouldn't expect that to happen. You'd think, oh, no one heard it. But yeah. it, it, Crichton follows it up with this very human event where Harding's like, hello, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. coming out the door, not yeah. realising the peril he's in. Yeah. It's yeah. And good. I, and also it's quite cool how he writes it because he can't see the raptors. You know, he, he feels like it's okay because there's nothing there. Exactly. But it actually comes from round behind the door, doesn't it? The claw swipes round and, yeah. and cuts him, doesn't it? It's, yeah. a, it's a very Crichton-esque thing to have this have the reader be in on, on what they should be afraid of and knowing what's going on 
like almost in a sort of uh, uh, you know god mode. You you have a good view over what's going on, and yet the characters who you're watching are sort of haplessly doing things, and they're completely blissfully unaware of the of the danger that they're in, which makes it even more scary because you're like, no, don't go there, don't go yeah. out there, don't leave the kids there. So yeah. it, it really adds to the to the tension. It's, yeah, really it's like as soon as he opens that door, you're thinking, no, there's raptors on the roof, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what have you done? You know, yeah. what, what is going to happen here? But in a way, that's uh, that, that sort of saves Ellie as well, doesn't it? Because yes. she's able to, obviously she hits the, the pool and then she's able to get out of that situation. So it's so clever how one, th- you know, he's always writing ahead of himself. You know, he, he puts these little things in, but they actually have a, they have a um, an outcome which moves mm. the story onto the next the next stage. We go back to Grant and he finds Gennaro in the bunker, um, and they manage to escape the bunker and they go back to the visitor center. But in the meantime, we've got uh, Tim and Lex in the kitchen, and we get the the novel's version of the the kitchen scene that we get in the movie. I wondered what your thoughts were on this bit, Tom. Yeah, it's quite cool. Um... I'll be honest, I don't remember too much of this bit. I just remember the fact that Tim's kind of laying out frozen steaks. That's it, yeah. Um, yeah, and the, and the raptor, like, hesitates at one point before it goes for it. And yeah. I remember thinking that was quite cool, because obviously these are set up as intelligent creatures. So you, you kind of have this moment of doubt where you're like, okay, are these so clever that they can understand that it's a trap? And it kind of makes you like do a double take because you think that the raptor's going to run off and then it just kind of doubles down on itself and goes into the freezer. And then I love how you have this moment where um, there's almost this great metaphor for our dependence on technology um, because um, at this point Tim has got the night vision goggles on so he can see everything that's going on really easily but Lex can't. And so there's this really tense moment where Tim's up against the door holding the raptor in the fridge. Um, He's attempting to get Lex to put the pin in the lock to secure it. And he's getting frustrated. He's saying, look, it's right there. And then he realises that he's got these goggles on and she doesn't, so she can't see it. And I think that's a really nice um, sort of like very, very meta metaphor that was the weirdest thing I've ever said um, about <laughs> how, like, even back as far as 1993, as we were making technological advances, we were beginning to place more and more faith in technology for things that we should just be able to do ourselves. And I feel like Crichton was very, very self-aware of that and very self-aware of the fact that a lot of people take technology for granted. So it's something that's present throughout a lot of his novels and it's nice to see it kind of echoed here a bit. Yeah, he's he's a little bit ahead of his time as well in some cases, yeah. isn't he? Like the touchscreens in the Explorers there. Yes. I mean, nowadays, everything we own practically is touchscreen. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, 93, that was... I couldn't have, have imagined a, a device at that time that was touchscreen. You know, it was sort of one of those sort of futuristic things. But he was able to sort of foresee the way that, that scientific developments were 
coming down the line, wasn't he? Yeah. I, I also love the fact that they use the night vision goggles again. Um, we actually get them a third time. It, Grant uses them later on, which is which is quite nice. And it's a great um, illustration that Vector that Fox Joe did uh, in the novel, the folio um, edition, the 30th anniversary edition. Uh, she does a one of the illustrations is of Tim's point of view looking through the goggles and the raptors sort of turning yeah. his head towards him, you know, but it's going for the stakes in the kitchen. So that's really cool. And you've got the green the green glow. Um, and, and Crichton actually references the green mist coming from the freezer, I think. So that's nicely written. What, what do you think about this bit, Dave? Yeah, I was going to say it's the night vision goggles um, stuff really puts kind of, again, the reader in a position where, you know, Lex is like helpless and we know the bigger picture. So, you know, Timmy is there at the door saying you need to put the, you know, you need to put the, the pin in to lock the door. And Lex is completely helpless because it's pitch black. So although we know the full picture, Lex doesn't. And it just makes mm. this much more tension filled. And you feel like, come on, come on, you know, hurry up. But it, there's the raptor. The raptor even gets the door open, which feels like um, yeah, how they portray it in, in Jurassic Park. Um, the way that the raptor kind of gets its snout out of the door. Uh, so it does feel like that. Um, I didn't recognize the green mist. I remember reading that part and thinking, why is the mist green? And then now it makes <laughs> sense because obviously yeah. he's looking through the, the night vision goggles. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a really nice kind of tension filled um, part. Um, and yeah, it does it does show kind of the over dependence on, on automation and, and technology. And yeah, at the time, all of these kind of these devices were 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 advanced, so it kind of added mm. to the feeling of the of the park being you know really uh, grandiose and expensive and and you know um, technologically advanced. A lot of these things weren't readily available. Night vision goggles I knew about in '93, but they weren't a commodity that you could just pick up and yeah. use yeah. like a toy. Um, Probably and then military also, application. And it was it, it was only then. military. Yeah. And you used to see it in films as a military device, expensive. And then touchscreens. I mean, I think in some visitor attractions in '93, you may have had touchscreens. They were slow. They weren't very responsive. They were very hard to press the buttons. I remember them, but that was it. And they'd usually just be one big monitor, and that would be it. Mm. Um, so to hear that they've got them on their computer screens is for the time was quite exciting um, and quite advanced. So yeah, all of this stuff is um, is really yeah, it just adds to the technological kind of uh, superiority of Jurassic Park. But despite all of that, despite all of that automation, um, it's it's over automated. And like yeah. Tom was saying, there's only one person who knows each area of the park so if they die or something goes wrong with them then that whole area of uh, automation is completely pointless because they're the person ultimate they're the person running it and and kind of fine-tuning it so um yeah so that's interesting well that's one of the problems we come up against shortly because of course we've just lost woo uh, and it's all very well Grant getting the power back on, but once that's the power right. back's on, the computer system's got to be booted yeah. up, hasn't it? So it's that's kind right. of, you know, that's pre- that's immediately presenting the next the next problem. One thing I did just think, Lex and Tim must have had many years on the couch after this. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's... Oh, my what, God, yeah. Can you imagine? You know, I mean, Lex is... It must be well, both of them. But you know that moment of being in the in the raptor kitchen there, not being able to see, but being acutely aware of the threat. Well, I mean, how old is she in the book? I think she is 
11 or something like yeah. that, isn't she? Oh, no, she's the younger one, isn't she? She's, so she's the younger seven. one, yeah. yeah I so. bet after this experience, they must have written some killer horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing about it, though. Even in the film, it's so psychologically traumatizing the idea oh, yeah. of children being alone in a kitchen which would be an otherwise safe space um it's kind of sterile it's cold it's corporate and then you've got this creature coming mm. in almost like they're trapped in a box with a monster i mean it's so terrifying yeah but it would yeah. be it would be very traumatic for little that's kids. an excellent part of the film actually where lex is eating the jelly and they, they're sort of toing and fro Lex and Tim and they're tucking into their food and they go from being really happy about their situation, don't they? And then you've got that bit where Lex is, you know, the jelly's wobbling on the spoon and you can just, it's so brilliantly acted. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's brilliant. Children actors, sometimes it's it's difficult to, to cast them correctly, but I think they, just coming off the novel slightly onto the film, but I think they really, they really did play that whole kitchen sequence very well. So I think both well. of them did a, yeah. did an excellent job of that. Yeah. Um, I know, David, you've got the the um, some bits and pieces around the kitchen, and um, it's one of your favourite scenes in the movie, I believe. Yes, it is. Yeah, I love that sequence. I think because it takes me right back to '93 and being a child and putting myself in their shoes and thinking how terrifying that was. I think that was the for me the most traumatising part of the movie. Yeah, um, because it made the dinosaur stalking you visceral and and real. It just it was it was so good. It was so scary. And like you say, the way they act it when when Lex says it, you know, it's so. Yeah. She's barely got any voice left because she's trembling with terror. Yeah, it's just so realistic. It's it's wonderful. I think another thing with the raptors as well against say the rex or even the dilophosaurus because they're 12 foot in the novel uh in size the the bigger dinosaurs even though obviously they're horrifically scary and very strong and all the rest of it something about the raptors being smaller and more agile and quicker and and can jump further and things like that there's something even more terrifying about that for me the the idea of this big lumbering rex that you could potentially hide from or find a way to get out of the way of you know raptors being small much smaller and much quicker that they're almost more of a threat i would imagine yes yeah more of a human-sized adversary yeah yeah Yeah. i think that's the thing that's so scary about them is that they're closer to us yeah uh you know and and the way they you know opening doors is it's the intelligence they're bringing them more in line with us than we expected yeah and that's because they're you know then they become more adversarial and scary equals yeah yeah so we go to, we get to the point now where um grant has discovered Gennaro and he's actually managed to get the power back on or at least the the backup power back on by starting the generator up again so that's a little bit different to the to the movie because obviously we've got the electric um with Ellie putting the electric back on and getting the paddocks back in business but what that does do is it means all of a sudden that the security locks work on the doors, which is quite interesting because we've learned about that right back at the very beginning um, of the tour when we was showing them around the place. And that presents a new problem for, for Lex and Tim. You know, they've got out of the kitchen there. They're back in the control room and the power's on. And Tim's starting to sort of fiddle around with the computer system. And then all of a sudden we learn that the Raptors are in the main building. And then we get a quite a quite a big long sequence of events with the raptors pursuing lex and tim and they eventually 
uh, stumble upon Grant and Gennaro, which I don't know about you guys, but when I read that bit, I was so relieved for them in that moment. Yeah. Because I really, I really felt like that was the end of the line for them. What did you, uh, what did you take from this whole sequence of events, Tom? I think it, um, it perfectly kind of when I think of it, I think of Malcolm's. Um, display on Ellie's hand in the Ford Explorer in the film mm. um, of how Chaos Theorem works, which is this idea that they think, okay, we're going to get the power back on and it's going to solve all these problems that were here beforehand but actually it just causes different problems altogether instead with the locks. Yeah. I think it's kind of it's a really cool way of I, I suppose highlighting this factor even when um, these characters believe that they've got some semblance of control back. There's no control left to be had at this point. Um, and I, I also think um, the sequence with Lex and Tim trying to escape the raptors felt a little bit long and drawn out to me. But yeah. I think that's a good thing because I think it, it kind of makes you get in the headspace of this vulnerability. You know, this this isn't somebody with a tranquilizer pistol. Um, this isn't a person with a shotgun. This is two kids trying to escape these raptors. And it, it, it kind of gets to the point where it goes on for so long that by the time they run into Grant and Gennaro, you're almost desperate for them to get away. And it kind of satisfies that urge right at the end. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. And they're forced into the position where they've got to... Because Tim, I think, takes the security guard's um, yeah. card, doesn't he? And they're basically being stalked by the raptors again so that he doesn't really have a choice other than to unlock one of the rooms and start this journey through the building whilst they're being pursued by the raptors. What do you make of this bit of the book, David? Yeah, it's interesting you were saying about the key cards. I was saying to Tom before how uh, if you if you stayed in a hotel or a resort round 93, you were still using keys, physical keys usually. And yeah. key cards, again, is another advanced tech that we would kind of take for granted now. Um, you know, if you were staying in a hotel now, you'd just expect a, a kind of a swipe card. So that's interesting and kind of a, a technological standpoint. But I like this part of the book because you get more description of the raptors again and their behavior. And there's that whole bit when um, Tim sees them, I think, jumping up to the second floor and they've jumped all the way up. And he kind of goes, whoa, they've jumped all the way up. Because mm. um, he expects the raptor to be the one from the fridge, from the freezer. That's um, right, yeah. And, and it's not. It's like a new set of raptors. And then there's the whole bit when they run into the baby raptor uh, in the adjacent room. Yeah. And then um, they decide to, to like throw the baby at the raptors as a distraction. Like, here, have your child. And mm. instead of them, and you kind of get the impression that maybe they're being tender with the baby because they sort of like, they go down with their snout and they're just kind of buffing it. And then they eat it. And you're like, whoa, like these yeah. things are savage. Um, so it really kind of helps paint this sort of very cold reptilian picture of, of the raptors. Uh, That's really savagely written as well, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's awful. I made a note about how horrible that is. Yeah, because you... And also the way the rap the baby raptor is when they're in the room, it isn't it like rubbing its head against Tim's head or something? Yeah. It's like it's being all like, you know, cuddly. It's like <laughs> got a moment of tenderness before it gets torn oh, apart. Oh yeah. It's just so horrible. And poor Lex, again, you know, like you're saying, we're gonna need to go to therapy after this because yeah. This this part, you know, as a seven year old, it would, you know, scare you for life. It's just all. And then, it's just ketchup, Lex. Well, then also there's a bit when they go and get the key card from the security guard, and actually, yeah. quite and kind of casually, 
brushes over this bit, but I'm thinking Lex is stood there next to a corpse that's been mangled yeah. by dinosaurs. Well, actually, doesn't one of them stand on an ear? Lex, Lex does, yeah, yeah, later on. She stands on an ear, which is, you know, at least she's recognising that she stood on it, and that's disgusting. But before yeah. that point, she's actually stood next to the guard corpse, and they don't really... It doesn't really address that. It doesn't really address her reaction to that. So I'm yeah. there like, oh my God, these kids they must be traumatised. They stood next to a corpse. But I guess because it's goal-oriented and they're going for the key card, they don't really think about it. They're just like, get the card and go. Yeah, but, you're yeah, in the I moment, did, aren't you? Yeah, I did find myself thinking, wow, okay, there was no mention of a reaction from, from Timmy or Lex. But I guess it just drives the story forward. So, I like um, the way that this this um, this bit uh, is written by Crichton is quite good as well because he builds it up like at one point just before they bump into G- uh, Gennaro and Grant, the alarm is going off and yeah. the lights are going on and off, and you can just I just imagine that in a cinematic way how yes. how that would build and build and build. You know, they get this swipe card, they get into the room, but the Raptors are pursuing them, so they break out of that room and they're in this corridor and the alarms. Go, you know, it's it sort of builds and builds. Yeah. And, I almost imagine Spielberg, the way that Spielberg would do that is he would have no score during that part of, of the... Um, it's something I love that he does in his films. At certain times, he just has no score at all. He'll just have the sound of the rain or the sound of an alarm or something. And it just... It's the tension and the it, the panic that that would make them feel with the lights going on and off so they can see the raptors pursuing them one moment and the next minute they can't and it comes on and off. It's It's kind of like a sinking submarine moment. Yeah. yeah. It's a, just, it's it's very well described that whole sequence because I can really picture the environment they're in. Yeah. Um and the way that Crichton describes it it's it feels really uh unsettling and and frenetic. It feels well, that, re- really good. That leads us on to the, the when they do actually meet up with Grant and and he basically takes control of the situation, doesn't he? He's got what three raptors I think pursuing them. So he he gets Gennaro to take the kids uh, back to the control room but the door that they go through doesn't lead them to anywhere else so they're effectively watching Grant through a glass screen I believe yeah. it is aren't they which I, I think that's quite well written because that again just going back to the kids facing so many traumas they're now actually having to watch Grant versus the Raptors play out right in front of them yeah. Knowing, yeah. knowing that if that goes wrong they're in a room that they can't get out of So there's um there's a direct quote that ends up in Jurassic World here as well because Grant says to Gennaro, take the kids someplace safe. And that's okay. what Owen says to Claire in Jurassic World when they get reunited with Zack and Grey. Right, okay. So there you go. They, they probably just pulled that straight out of the novel, haven't yeah. they? Yeah, well, there's there's so many bits that where they've done that, but those little details, um, they're, they're really interesting because it, it looks like someone's read that over and over and they've taken it and just pulled that out and, and put it into one of the films, yeah. which is... Really cool to see. I love this bit, actually. I think it's really clever because we've learned much earlier on about how the eggs work um, and about the toxins that they keep in the hatchery. And basically that whole bit of the book at the beginning with the tour with Wu and Arnold taking them around the different rooms and explaining what they do and how it works, that's all looks to me like it's all just been placed uh, in the novel for this part of the novel so that there's a way for Grant's, Grant to defeat the raptors. I love how the egg is glowing 
from all mm. of the, the chemicals or, or the toxins that he's pumped into the egg. Yeah. And the fact that they fight each other, I think that that feels very animal-like and it makes it sort of brings it back to nature again. It feels like a, quite a realistic thing for them to do. What do you uh, think of this bit, Tom, with Grant and uh, Gennaro and the kids and, the, and Grant defeating the raptors? I think it's cool how he doesn't just defeat all three of them. Uh, or I think it's two at this point, isn't it? Or it might be three still. Um, I, I like how he doesn't defeat them all in one go. There's kind of like a bit of back and forth with things going wrong. And then eventually he gets them all. Um, but I think my favourite thing here is actually the little nod to paleontology where they talk about the oviraptor and how it would have um, eaten other animals' eggs as opposed to going mm. and hunting. Because mm. um, obviously that's something that scientifically is still accurate today as far as we understand. Um, although I think there is a little bit of contention around it now. Um, but I just think it's cool that he kind of found a way to factor in a cool little fact that Grant would have known, because obviously he's the paleontologist of the group, so it kind of reinforces his character and why he's the perfect person to be placed in this scenario. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And he's falling back on his knowledge, isn't he, in order to put together the situation he finds himself in, the tools that are in front of him, and then his, his scientific knowledge of dinosaurs is the thing that enables him to sort of put that together to yeah. come up with a way of dealing with the situation. Definitely, it's really well written, that part. What do you think, David? Yeah, it's a bit like uh, the moment when Timmy has the, the Rex tongue around him. You're like, how is he going to get out of this situation? It's him versus three raptors which we've been told because of their metabolism and, and anatomy that they're actually really hard to kill, that they die slowly if you, you know, try to tranquilize them. So you think, well, how is he going to, how is he going to get out of this? What's going to happen? And then, yeah, like, like say he uses his paleo knowledge with the egg and this uh, toxin to take them out. And I think it, because it's a new way to kill them, you as the reader, it's just completely unpredictable whether this is going to be a success or not. So there's that element of, oh, well, this might fail and Grant might die here. Um, so that, you know, the, the threat level is really high. Um, but I do like it. I do like the way that the, the raptors kind of keel over. And then, like you say, one kind of comes over and decides to bite the other one. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. oh, this is food. And actually, it's almost foreshadowed by the baby part. Because mm. you get a feeling of they're like, well, food is food. It doesn't matter what it is, but if it's dying or or, or dead, I'm going to try and eat it, you know, or if it's less, if it's smaller than me, I'm going to try and eat it. So you get a feeling of how kind of ruthless they are when they're hungry. So it's kind of foreshadowed by that baby bit. Um, So, yeah, it kind of all falls in line with their behavior and feels natural. Um, But, yeah, you do kind of wonder how is Grant going to take out three raptors? And then this is kind of like a nice way to do it. The third, the third raptor is is one of my favourite parts of this particular scene as well because he remembers he has the walkie-talkie and he radios oh, through yes. to Ellie, doesn't he? That's and right. throws that out into the room and just cool. says to her, you know, just talk because he's, he wants to use her as the decoy. And um, I love the fact that the raptor takes the decoy initially and walks over to it and then Grant thinks to himself he wishes he'd thrown the walkie-talkie further yeah. away. <laughs> it, I love yeah. that because that's just yeah. like real life. You can imagine that happening. Yeah, you'd literally have that thought you think, why didn't I throw that to the other <laughs> side of the flipping room? And then, and then we have this tussle where he, I think he injects it into the tail of the raptor. 
That's we right. have this. So we have another battle, and I think we get a. Doesn't he get slashed here again? Yeah, this by is the when raptor. He gets attacked again. Yeah. At this point, he's fully bled out. I mean, at this point, he's Iron Man because yeah. he's like he's absolutely battered, but he's still got the strength to fight fight this raptor and and incur another injury. Um, yeah, and still keep going because he's he's got more to do in the novel as we as we will come to shortly. So you after a, this, sorry, you get, I was going to say you get a feeling of Crichton's medical knowledge whenever the animals get attacked, like attack someone because they kind of he kind of like and then they felt the warm gush of mm. blood. He's a, he's very descriptive in his, um, you know, in the injuries. You can tell that's his medical background coming in. You know. Put, describing exactly what it feels like to be slashed by a raptor. You um, get a real sense of when he says warm, when you read warm, it, you can almost feel this, you can sense yeah, that, can't you? It's really visceral, really, really descriptive. And I suppose what's probably interesting with his medical background is he probably knows, if, if you were to look, if you were to research the injuries that he says people incur during this novel and where they get attacked and so on he probably knows that that would not necessarily kill you or it would kill you in the case of Dedry depending on where you were attacked or slashed yeah. or bitten would yes. have a different effect on your outcome wouldn't it? Definitely yeah I think he, especially with Hammond later on when we get on to Hammond I think you'll see oh, yeah. as well Yeah, so, we, so we've defeated the Raptors so that's a huge well we've, refeat, we've defeated the three that are pursuing them in the visitor centre but we also have the impending doom of the two Raptors back on the roof and they are really smashing through now um, and it falls on Tim's shoulders to try not Lex as we get in the movie but to try and get the systems back on now there's a, a few nice things here I mean he eventually does so he, you know, he manages to to um, neutralise the raptor threat over at the Hammond's Lodge but I like the fact that we get the cameras start flashing on and we get one camera flashes in on Malcolm uh, laying in the bed and, and then a raptor bursting through the roof well, not all the way into the room but sort of bursting yeah. through the bars so you've got that impending doom and then we're re re we are reminded again of the fact that actually there's a boat going to the mainland with a raptor on it which has been sort of mentioned throughout the novel every now and again, like Grant will check his watch to see how long he's got to get back to the visitor centre to stop the boat. But it's kind of always underlying in the background of the story that mm. even though they're facing these immediate problems, one after the other, in the background of all of that, regardless of what happens on the island, there's still the potential threat of these raptors getting onto the mainland. So um, we get a camera view of the boat literally coming into dock which I love because it kind of takes you off the island all of a sudden and you, you can imagine that this thing's just about to arrive on the mainland. Yeah. Yeah. And then I love this little sequence where Tim gets the phones back on and they're all scrambling around to try and find the correct phone, which happens to be on the side of the monitor, to speak to the captain of the boat. And Tim's faced with having to speak to this captain and he doesn't know what to say. So Gennaro steps in and gives him some sort of legal maritime... Um, law that orders him to turn around the boat and if he doesn't you know he'll face this that and the other and the guy turns the boat around and I think it's Grant says what sort of law is that and he says well, I don't know it doesn't matter because he's just yeah. made it up he's just in that moment he's just thrown a load of jargon out there to try and make the guy think he's you know take him seriously so I thought that was really I thought that was really good and at this point you I as a reader I, I get this feeling of relief 
I know it's not the end of the book because I've got pages in my, you know, in my hand still to read. But you think, hold on a minute, they've defeated all five raptors. They've got the phones back on. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. sh- surely that's it. They've done it, haven't they? So it's kind of it's that bit feels like it's the end of that immediate uh, one thing after the other chaotic environment. Yes. And again, it's a bit like earlier on where we think they've got the power back on and then all of a sudden they haven't got the power back on. And then here we are where they, you, you think they've escaped all of the potential problems and they've eventually got the park back on. But Grant's not happy with that. He wants to go out and find the raptor nests. Yes. And you just think, yeah. I just remember thinking, really? <laughs> you know, I think yeah. if it was me, I would get down to that cafeteria. I'd want to go home. <laughs> get a coffee with something else in it and wait for the, <laughs> for the helicopter to arrive. Yeah. But we, you know, we don't get that. We get him, uh, he, he goes after the raptor nests and he has a falling out with Gennaro, doesn't he? Because Gennaro doesn't yeah. want to do it. They just want, he just wants the island to be bombed. And Grant basically holds him to account for the fact that he's effectively let all of this happen, really. Yes. yes. Without, you know, without having a, a, taking a proper view of things. What do you make of all of this whole sequence about going after the raptor nests and taking Gennaro along with him, Tom? So there's one really cool point just before it that I think um, underpins this whole story and really seals the deal for Hammond and the fate that um, Hammond gets. And that is the fact that this whole time there's been um, toxic grenades on the island stored in an armoury room. And they make the point of saying that Hammond would have known that the armoury was there but all throughout this thing, he hasn't mentioned it to ever, anyone. And I kind of like how it sort of... It, it gives you two very specific things. The first is the fact that Hammond is so ignorant in thinking that he can control this situation that he never thinks to suggest about killing one of the dinosaurs with these weapons because mm. he's always so focused on the value of them that he becomes desensitised to the loss of human life throughout the novel. And the second thing is the fact that in many ways he isn't ignorant and you can see that deep down he always knew his idea was going to fail because he didn't stop them from putting that room in when That's he could really have That's a really good done. point actually. Yeah. I hadn't really sort of thought that one through but you're absolutely right. You know, even to the point that he's prepared for his grandkids to be in massive danger and still not Yeah. still not use the the weaponry that he's got and also um you know the second point you just made there that is that is it, it's he, he did know actually didn't yeah. he that there was a potential risk there so yeah he makes some that that's he makes some excellent points there i completely forgot about the armory cupboard what do you think about that david yeah the 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 armory in particular i i find um i i wonder if hammond himself didn't even know that was there like it's showing how okay. how um little you know how little understanding he had of the resort that he'd built like they had safety protocols built in that he maybe wasn't even aware of or maybe one of them was aware of but they died already and they didn't know you know maybe Arnold would have known um but yeah I do find it odd that that's there the the part when they're going down into the raptor's nest is really like Mm. the descent into like hell it's like you know they've got to go down through this hole in the ground they don't know where they're going um, they're in like a geothermal setting, so it's like warm yeah. and volcanic. So it's like mm. they're it's like a descent into into a hellish end. Like they have to go to hell and back 
before claustrophobic they, as well isn't it claustrophobic as well they have to basically go down here in order to reconcile their sins essentially um and and grant makes Gennaro kind of tries to make him repentant by saying no you're not sorry you've done all of this you're not sorry and Gennaro is trying to say like i'm sorry i'm sorry and he's like yeah. no you're not this is what you the gravity of the situation that you face um and then yeah they go down it's it's quite it's quite scary in a way because you feel sorry for Gennaro, but he is intrinsically involved in the development of this part. Mm. So Grant yeah. is right. Um, I do feel that like Grant here is driven partly by his paleontological passion. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, like like you say, then I think if I were there, I'd be like, I want to get off this island now. I've done. We've done it. We've done everything we needed to do. And I remember when I first read the book, I was like, this is the end, surely. What are we yeah. doing? What are we doing this for? Um, but it feels like he's partly driven by his passion for paleontology, and he wants to find out why these raptors are behaving this way. And also the fact that he's seen that stray raptor on a boat, I think there's part of him that feels like, well, we need to work out what happened there as well. And that's sort of mm. at the back of his mind, maybe thinking that this yeah. one breadcrumbs will lead to the answer of why there was one on a boat anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a very much it feels like a, a last minute detour. I agree with you, um, but it's important. It's a really important point in the book, and his 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 realization that they're migrating. It's birds. They're birds. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, there's a, it's quite cleverly written as well because we've got the juvenile raptor that leads them to the nest, which That's obviously right. takes us right back to the waterfall, and the fact that he's got a collar on. Um, is interesting as well. They, they put the tracking collar on him because that is a moment of peril for Ellie, isn't it? Because the 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 adult raptor comes over, the juvenile yeah. raptor, sorry, is rubbing up, um, you know, against them to say, you know, take this thing off because he's uncomfortable, and it and it makes the 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 raptor come, the large raptor come over to see them. So it's kind of like this, and again, another human intervention potentially puts them at great risk. Um, and also, there's a there's a Remark about the alpha female, the main raptor, having a stripe on her face. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, it's quite interesting with blue in mind. Yes. Um, I don't yeah. know whether that played any part whatsoever in the design of I, the, I think the raptor did. blue. But yeah, I but think yeah. it did. And that yeah. sounds to me like that was the direct inspiration for blue. Going back and reading the novel. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought it as soon as I read it. Yeah, but, me too. It really stood out as the inspiration for blue. Um, so, and interesting it being the alpha you know tied to Owen being the alpha and, and Blue being the probably the lead raptor of the squad yeah it'd be fascinating to find that out for sure because it would be uh, it's such an interesting thing that this effectively this new main character Blue I know she's not a human character but she uh, has a much more prominent role in the in the newer films could well have just come straight out of the novel again that would be, yeah. that'd be yeah. fascinating to confirm so of course, while all this is going on, we we get Hammond's death. Yeah, and this is a this is a, a brilliantly written piece. I I love the fact that well, I don't love the fact that he dies. I, I was going to say that, but that sounds wrong. <laughs> I like the fact that he starts ranting off about every single person that he's employed <laughs> in the park in his, yeah. in his mind. Yeah, so he he starts off with Arnold, I believe, and he you know Arnold's okay, but. You know he's lost his concentration, yeah. and he, he basically just drag. He just completely destroys every individual, 
and yes. how he should have he should have seen that he wasn't capable of this and he wasn't capable of that. And he even ends up by saying the stupid kids. And I think yes. that's yeah. hilarious, really, because he blames <laughs> everybody but himself in the end, doesn't he? Yeah, that's yeah. right. What did you think of this bit, Tom? Um, so I there's a really interesting moment I made a note of, which is right before he leaves to go to the... Um, to go to his cottage, he's talking to somebody in the visitor centre and then um, they say something to him and he apologises for something. To Harding. And then, yes. And then he's like, oh, why should I apologise to this man? This man's Mm. my employee. And it kind of shows his attitude towards them and perfectly kind of encapsulates um, why his character feels so... I suppose above everyone else and why ultimately he pins the blame on everyone except for himself. Um, But also there's a really interesting moment and this is going to be a really, really weird reference for me to make. But I'm... Oh my God, it actually happened. It did. It did. It actually happened. Wonderful. It's okay. It's all right. I'm still here. It didn't hit me. Okay, so I'm going to start that last sentence again so you have an easier job cutting it. For listeners that can't see what just happened, my large Jurassic Park 3 standee that was blue tacked to the wall just collapsed on top of me, which I had uh, (laughs) suspected might happen. So yeah, the the blue tacked in the wall. The climax of the book. Yeah, but I'm okay. By the Jurassic Park logo. Yeah. <laughs> so um, this is a really meta reference, but I'm really into War of the Worlds, and okay. in um, War of the Worlds, I think it's in the novel, but it's in the audible audio drama as well. There's this moment where the reporter has just come off a horsel common after the first alien attack, and he's kind of walking, trying to make sense of everything, and he has a workman walk past him on the other side of the road who just says, Good night to you, sir. And it's like this really casual moment of human interaction that this character can't make any sense of. Mm. And it really made me think of that moment where Hammond's kind of going to this cottage, he's lost in his own illusions about who's responsible responsible for his park failing him and this workman just passes him and he pays him like no attention whatsoever and then later on when he thinks the t-rex is coming he's like oh i should have paid him attention as is he running where's he gone oh it doesn't matter it, it just like it made me think of that really nice moment of um, in War of the Worlds as well this impending chaos juxtaposed with normal everyday life yeah, the two things are sort of mixed together in that one moment, aren't they? Yeah. And it's almost like an arrogance that Hammond has that, oh, I'm not even going to acknowledge you, you know, sort of thing. He's just, yeah. It, this guy's of absolute no importance whatsoever to him until he needs him or, he, you know, he needs to know what happens to him at least. What What do you think about that bit, David? Yeah, it's it's like he's blinded by his own sort of arrogance. He's, he's you know, blaming everyone left, right and centre and then... Uh, Funnily enough, the thing that sort of sends him falling down the hill is the sound of the Tyrannosaurus Rex roaring, which is not actually a Tyrannosaurus Rex roaring. We find oh, yeah. out we find out that it's actually Timmy and Lex playing with sound effects on on the computers and playing it over the loudspeaker. Um, so actually, he's kind of killed by his own technological indulgences, like things that they didn't need. Or I don't yeah. know what that would be for, maybe to distract dinosaurs away. I don't know, but but it is it, referenced much earlier. I think when they're on the tour, I think it's right. in order to um, get the Rex to come out or something like that. They play a sound or or something like that. I think. 
Right, so it's kind of ironic that the, the lore for the T-Rex is, is the thing that actually makes him trip and fall. You know, it's not a real dinosaur. It's this man-made, um, you know, automated uh, yeah. indulgence that, that kills him ultimately. Yeah. Um, and he falls down the hill and, you know, gets stuck at the bottom and breaks his ankle and he's kind of stuck there. Um, it's interesting because, uh, to me, Hammond is like... Uh, the arrogant creator of Jurassic Park, and he's as adamant that he is right as Malcolm is adamant that he is right. If that makes yeah. sense. They're yeah, two yeah. opposing forces. Hammond being the capitalist and and the the dreamer, and Malcolm being the scientist and the one to criticize him. And, and ultimately, Malcolm is right. But what we get here is the fact that Hammond dies. And shortly after Malcolm is, we learn, has died, they're two opposing forces and both think that they can know intimately the plans that nature has. Yeah. They both, yeah. They both die at this point. Uh, so yeah. for me, this is a very important part of the book because it's basically saying that like neither of them can know. Neither of them have power over Mother Nature. One yeah. is really clinical and scientific. The other one is a dreamer and a capitalist, and neither can know. So they both die. Yeah, and it's interesting actually think... with you saying that, that because I'm pretty sure when Hammond's being cross in his mind about each of the individuals that are on the island, he even says of Malcolm, you know, he's even cross that he might die because that yeah. that even that proves Malcolm's point. Yes, and that's it's yeah, like, he is. You know, he's, he's worried actually about that. Yeah, he's more worried about that than the fact that Hammond's going. Uh, sorry, Malcolm will actually die. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it sort of led me down a tunnel of thought of, so what's the reasoning behind that? Is that because he's a, like a well-established mathematician? So if he dies, he's died at Hammond's hands, mm. and that means that his his reasoning was correct. Do you know what I mean? I kind of Although like. Does yeah. does he die? Well, that's the thing. We'll then, wait until the next book club to find out. In in the context of this novel, when this I, was being written, when definitely. this was being written, yeah. I always see that as poignant that both of them uh, being Completely arrogant agree. enough to yeah. to know that nature's plans yeah. kills them both off because they're basically yeah. nature's like no, neither of you know me. You're both going to die. You know, that's the yeah. way it feels at the end. And they're both coming at it from the complete opposite point of view, aren't they? Yeah. Exactly. Two opposing yeah. forces. No, I agree I with you. He's def he was definitely written to die in this, in this uh, book. Yeah. Yeah. I find it quite interesting at this moment to catalyst for the destruction of Jurassic Park as well. So Hammond dies and then his dream slowly fades away. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good yeah, point. Yeah, nicely written. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And also, when he falls down the hill, there that uh, that the way that Crichton writes that feels very much like the moment where Dieter falls down the hill in the Lost World. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, into yeah, the river, uh, the, you know, the shallow river. There, it's actually yeah. written almost identically. So uh, I thought that was quite interesting, and the fact that they, you know, they sit there and chirp and and watch. Yeah, um, nibble his nose off. Yeah, yeah I know. Oh, it's really horrible. Yeah. And then one lands on his neck again, like we were saying, with you'd know where. You know that would be a crucial point. That would that would that would kill him off. But also the yeah. way he goes into the dreamlike state, and and he does the foreshadowing. Crichton does the foreshadowing with the confies again. So yeah. Hammond's yeah. Hammond's like thinking about what he knows. That if you get bitten by one, it sends you into a like a dreamy, almost pleasant state, and then that happens to him. Yeah, 
So he sort of yeah. half-heartedly kicks one off, it bites his ankle oh, or something, doesn't that's it? That's right, and, he, and he, you know. he just sort of doesn't... Yeah, you can really imagine it. Yeah, it's, yeah, really it's another really one of those really well-written pieces. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about that, thinking about it um, at this moment in time, is we've had some very horrific, violent, instant deaths, you know, people being slashed to bits and intestines poured out and all the rest of it and it's all happened very quickly to each of those individuals but this is this death is written in a very different way it's kind yeah. of it's all, almost presented to us in a slow dreamy kind of way as if to, as if the dream is dead if you know what i mean this whole it's like the dream finally place. breaking yeah yeah it's very it is very cleverly put together and it's poignant yeah. that he is taken down by not only by the children messing around, but by the smallest, probably the smallest creature on on the island. Yeah, and he's yeah. and and he's ultimately the creator of this thing. It's almost like, you know, something really tiny getting him. It's like the you know David slaying Goliath at the end. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it's just poignant that it's a really tiny creature. Yeah, he's well, not. Well, it almost yeah. it, it almost kind of feeds into like themes around creationism doesn't it and this idea that like like say for example in the real world that there's a big debate that us getting to the point where we understand science has suddenly destroyed god because people would explain away creation as science so it's very much the same like concept don't, where the don't dinosaurs... make me create the god creates uh, dinosaurs I was gonna try, but I didn't want to. Um, but it, it's almost like at the point where God is ultimately destroyed by his creations, and that's very much the same here, where Hammond essentially being God destroyed by his creations, the compies. Yeah, yeah. It's all. It, it, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of thoughts gone into his death. He's not just needed to sort of write him out of the story, has it? It's almost like he's left him right till the end here to kind of yeah. to make the point. And also the compies, um, they're not on the island as an attraction, which I quite like as well. They're there. They're purely there for a purpose. You know, they're they're there to yeah. eat the the droppings and clean up after the mess so they're not yeah. even they've not even well, been you created could say hammond was one big parlor i was gonna say exactly that, yeah. <laughs> yeah so i mean that in itself is a is a kind of hidden message there isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah. Placed on the, the, trash. the poop and yeah, yeah exactly deal with the rubbish and there they are dealing with the rubbish so uh, so yeah so he he meets his end and and like you guys said it's interesting that it's actually bought on by his kids and his technology and that's the thing that that gets him in the end. And both Malcolm and Hammond die in a state of delirium as far as we know as well, which I don't know if that's if there's any meaning behind that, but yeah, yeah, it's not a violent death, is it? It's quite a calm death for them. Yeah, it is. I don't know whether what the meaning in that is. Maybe the state of delirium just underpins that neither man was fully right. Hmm. Yeah, it all comes back to Grant really. He's the most together person yeah. on the island, isn't he? Yeah, I guess. Se- seemingly. Um, and he just deals with real life and the facts that are in front of him, doesn't he? I mm. think that's the other thing. But uh, a couple of interesting points which I noted. The um, when I read when I initially heard the Rex noise, I thought, oh, the Rex is back. But actually, the last time we get any Rex action is is the waterfall, isn't it? Um, yeah. Other than a reference to the park finding equilibrium um, when they get the power back on, there's a few monitor, uh, shots of the video monitors showing the Stegosaurus mixing and the raptors chasing down a triceratops or something and i think the rex is 
is said to be amongst one of those uh, views of the park. But that's actually the last time we see the Rex right back at the waterfall. So uh, the raptors sort of steal the show as far as the dinosaurs are concerned yeah. right at the end of the novel there. So then we then we go back to the uh, to the guys in the raptor nest and they follow the raptors out, don't they, to the beach? Yeah. Um, and we see the, the the raptors looking out across the sea there, and Grant realizes that they're they're migrating or they're looking to migrate, and they also realize that that's how they've escaped the electric fences of the park as well, because they've gone through the the geothermal area yeah. and they've come out onto the beach, which has effectively enabled them to roam freely. Um, and then we get the military coming in. Muldoon catches up with them. He says, "You know, it's happening now. We've got to get off the island." Yeah. We learn about Malcolm and and Hammond, and that felt a bit. Uh, Jurassic Park 3, funnily enough, at the end of Jurassic Park 3, where they, they all the military comes on the island there and they're all choppers are landing. And yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. That's almost the same, th- written in the same way about the Costa Rican uh, military, isn't it? Uh, what do you guys make of that? Uh, Tom, what do you think of that bit of the, the book there where we're with the raptors right at the end and we eventually get the island being destroyed? So I love how Crichton ultimately sums up his own, his whole book in a single interaction in the helicopter, which is the soldier frantically running around asking everyone who's in charge and nobody is. Because that perfectly sums up the concept of Jurassic Park, which is the fact that so many different people thought they were in control of it, but in reality, nobody was. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It's kind of like all all crammed into that moment and no one will actually take responsibility for it either will they yeah what about you david what did you make of that whole end part of the yeah book i don't think i could have put it better than tom actually the way the, the person is is asking who's in charge i hadn't even thought about the meaning of it i thought it was just kind of to add to the chaotic nature of the ending but actually that makes perfect sense um so that's a good observation tom um, and yeah, ultimately learning about Hammond and, and Ian Malcolm at the same time, like I said, it's those two opposing forces both being cancelled out. And um, I think there's there's a line where someone says it's about to happen or it's going to happen now. There's like a line where basically they're saying it's going to be destroyed right now. Yeah. And there's yeah, that, that kind of finality to, to, to the island as far as we know. Yeah. yeah. It's a kind of a brachiosaurus on the dock as the uh, volcano explodes behind it. Yeah, moment, really. Why? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I just wonder if they pulled the pulled that from you know yeah. got inspiration for that from that moment. Um, so yeah, so we so we so that's nearly the end of the book. We're off the island, so that's yeah. uh, that's quite an interesting part, really, that he decided to bomb the island because I would imagine at the time of writing the novel, like with Malcolm's death. I wonder if he he was like right. This is the end of it. How do I end this completely? We'll we'll blow up the island, so it you know it's no longer there. It doesn't exist anymore. And then he decides to write the bit at the very end where we are back in Costa Rica, and I think Grant uh, sat around the poolside there, and we meet Marta yeah. Gutierrez again, uh, who we've met right back in the very early part of the the novel when he thinks it's a basculist lizard and it turns out to be the compi and he he has a part in the store part to play in the story there and then right at the very end he's back talking to grant and he describes about how they've uh, had animals unknown animals eating the crops crops that have lysine in them um on the mainland so that leaves yeah. us with the kind of like we think the island's been destroyed and it's over but we learn right at the very end that it's not necessarily over what do you make of this last bit of the novel, Tom, where we're wrapping up things on the island, uh, on the mainland? 
I love how the moments in the hotel um, perfectly sum up this whole idea that throughout Jurassic Park, one of the main plots is not learning from our mistakes and not knowing when to draw a line underneath things and stop. Because you get this sense that here, rather than being transparent about it and saying, look, at this thing has happened, um, here's what we're doing about it. The Costa Rican government are already trying to kind of brush it under the rug and sort of make it so nobody's going to talk about it, nobody's going to be aware of what's happened, and then ultimately further down the line, because of that, somebody else will eventually mess with this science again. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, we think it's over, but it, but it's not actually over sort of thing. Yeah. What do you make of this bit, David? It's interesting because um, I love the open-endedness of it, the fact that it, Crichton leaves it on this description of these dinosaurs eating the crops and you... You imagine these raptors being at loose, you know, how deadly they are. Mm. And we know it's the raptors probably because we've seen them migrating, although it could be the Comsognathus, but it's more likely to be the raptors because of the, the ending being so focused on them leaving via the boat. So you kind of think, oh my God, if they're that, you know, that much of a threat, then being on the mainland is, is, is you know, a massive bombshell at the end. And obviously yeah. inspired the ending of Fallen Kingdom. But I guess I kind of think, like, what's the meaning of Grant being stuck at this this hotel? Like, the, the government won't let him leave is what we're left with. And I kind of think, like, is this supposed to be because man won't progress any further than this? Is this supposed to say, like, this is the end of the line for humanity and you're not going to move forward with your life if you do something like this? And it harks back to the line that Malcolm says earlier in the book: changes um, that you can't you you can't expect, like changes like death. Is this like like a like a death of humanity because of the the threshold that we've crossed and we can't go any further? So Grant is stuck at this hotel, almost like you know the Hotel California, the metaphor for humanity, basically being stuck at the gate like you won't go any further because of what you've done you're stuck in like purgatory yeah trapped trapped in trapped continually trapped yeah like living it, it up at the hotel costa rica <laughs> exactly yeah. he basically yeah. said good yeah it basically says you know we're not going anywhere doesn't it? yeah i'd be like yeah. great i'm safe yeah. <laughs> yeah good i'm staying right here yeah i Lock like the doors it, Mark, um, Crichton writes a little bit about the kids as well playing in the pool or something, doesn't he? Which I quite like because it, it sort of shows the innocence innocence of kids. I know earlier we were sort of joking about how, how how horrific it would have been for them and, you know, they'd probably spend years on the couch over all the trauma they've been through. But actually, it, because they're kids, they're, they're able to sort of bounce back and they're, they've gone through this awful experience and here they are just playing in the pool. You know, they've... They, from a kid's point of view, they've just moved on whilst Grant is still dealing with the, still going to have to deal with the aftermath of what he's just been through. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of the book, guys. So we have, uh, we've, we've done fifth iteration to the end. There's been absolutely loads and loads going on in this part of the novel. A couple of questions just before we wrap things up. I wondered what uh, individually your favourite difference from the novel uh, your favourite difference in the novel from the movie, be that a character, uh, a dinosaur, a part of the story, or a part of the, mm. the buildings and the infrastructure on the island. Tom, what, what would you have to say about that? The location variety. 
seeing like the tunnels seeing the um seeing the it's gonna come to me in a minute waterfall i've got it i've got it written here where did i put my paper waterfall no 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 the 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 building that they all stay in the lodge (laughs) The lodge. Yeah. There we go. I yeah. like how that was my description for it. The building they will stay in. But it worked. Um, I knew what you meant. <laughs> I'm actually talking about the hotel at the end. That's the best bit. Okay. <laughs> um, and also Hammond's Cottage. I just think it adds a lot more to Nublar and kind of the 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 like mixture between rugged industrialist infrastructure and then structures that really almost feel out of place on a tropical island. Like, I wouldn't think of something like a cottage on a tropical island, so Mm. I really love the contrast that brings. Yeah, yeah. No, you make some good points, actually. And I I love all of the different buildings and the different sort of infrastructure and and everything about the island. It it sort of stretches the story out, doesn't it, as well? It allows it to move into, into, into different places. David, what would you say? I'd say um, one change, it's not so much that I like it, but it's it's such a, a striking change is how gruesome the demise of characters is and how descriptive it is through Crichton's, you know, medical knowledge. Um, mm. It's it's much more visceral than the films. And in a way, that's the strength of the films because you don't see it. Your imagination is much worse. But in the book, the writing is so descriptive that you couldn't think of anything worse. Yeah. Um, so the way that the, the characters have much more detail to them not only in their demise but also in in their the way they are like Muldoon the way he behaves especially in this fifth iteration Grant I, I just think you just get much more you just get much more uh, reality to those characters and it's it's just much more enjoyable because you can really get into those characters and enjoy their thought processes yeah yeah no, definitely. So my last question to both of you, which I think you've, you've kind of touched on really, but it was just if you had any last thoughts about the novel in general, right from the very beginning to the end, and or it's um, bearing on the community or the films that we've got since, or any sort of last comments just to close us out. Tom, what were your um, thoughts? I, I think that the very fundamental concept that this novel captures perfectly is how, as a species, we have a habit of messing with things that we don't fully understand, Mm. and we're then not ready for the ramifications and the consequences of that. And I think that that's something which the films have explored in a mixed degree. They've done some bits of that really well, some bits perhaps could do with a little bit additional work. Um, So my biggest thing would be I'm really, really excited about the prospect of dominion going more tonally in the direction of the novel because i think there's a lot of stuff to like here yeah okay they make some excellent points there david what about yourself uh i think rereading this part of the novel it makes me realize how sort of timeless it is the only things that really stand out are the kind of technological differences which scarily we've caught up with everything apart from cloning (laughs) a dinosaur um i think that it would actually transfer really well now, given how violent it is and um, how scientific it is. I think actually an audience, a general audience would enjoy this as a as a, a serialised show, like a HBO style show. And it's something I've said before. Yeah, I think just rereading this novel just confirms how much I think this is ready for a 
you know, a, a streaming show format, you know, serialized, you know, eight parts doing the whole novel. I think it would be really good to get your teeth into those characters and really get into Muldoon, Grant, Gennaro, as they are depicted in the book and have a, you know, a literate companion to the book in, in you know, in in TV form, in TV serialized form. I think it would really work now. Um, and it doesn't yeah. have to be, you know, anything that, that, that takes away from the the Spielberg film. I think it's more of an accompaniment to the book. Um, but it's just so visceral and so good and so entertaining. I just think it would be great, great material to to mine for a, for a new TV show. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with both points you make, actually. I mean, with, with regards to the, the series, that could definitely be done now and it could live alongside Jurassic Park, the, the original movie, because I think it would be quite a different... Um, quite a different thing to view really it would be presented in a much different way and I think as well probably the technology's caught up as in the technology for CGI and animatronics would be better able to cover all of the different aspects of the story because you've got things like the wrecks in the lake that would have been very difficult in 93 I mean they had trouble didn't they with the animatronics anyway so to, to try and achieve those sorts of things back then would have been quite difficult whereas now that would be well I don't think it would be an issue at all I think they could manage it quite you know, relatively simply, yeah, the technology that we've got. So, and I you think... could still, I think, set it in the past so the technology is still lavish. Yeah, you know, because if if they if they get held at the, the resort at the end of the Jurassic Park series, mm. then who's to say whether this event happened in the past and it was covered up? So it's yeah. kind of like it can still have those you know details of being set in the nineties and have that appeal of being set in the nineties, perhaps. Um, but. Yeah, I just I think it would work. I think it would capture the, the right sort of audience as well with it being presented in that way because you know, I, 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 Rogue One did a good job of that, didn't it? When it when they went back to the beginning and, and they really concentrated on the hairstyles and the clothes and the the ships and the things in that film to make sure they tied in very well uh, and very cleanly yeah. to the start of the of the main Star Wars films. And I feel like although this wouldn't be a prequel, it would be another version of Jurassic Park they could still if they gave the attention to the detail of the, the the time scale the years that they were presenting this you know 1993 they could they could they, I think they could get it really really close yeah these yeah. days I, I'd definitely watch that I'm sure I'm sure most people I'm, I'm guessing here but I reckon most people in the community would be up for giving that a go and I yeah. think I think it would be really popular as well to be honest with you same same well and here's spitballing an idea for you Say you wanted it to all be the same continuity in the same universe. What's to say that this park was made by InGen? Could always make subtle changes to the story. Well, what's so tie it in with the current film franchise? What if InGen's not the only company that's had a failed park in the Oh, past? I see what you mean. Yeah, oh, yeah, that okay. could be that could be a good way to do a variant of the story. Yeah, I guess I, you'd have to I just change feel the like names this... of the characters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you'd have to go all out. You'd have to really mix that one up. But of course, if you did it and it worked well, then there's the potential for the the novel version of the Lost World as well in there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Makes it like a MCU sort of style yeah. Kind yeah. Of combination. The other thing as well, you can do the dinosaurs scientifically accurate. Yes, that's um, true. Which you know, it's not like necessarily for that to be you know, for it to be a true Jurassic Park story, but. You know, it's, it would be nice to have that kind of paleo um, 
accuracy there so that it kind of revives that interest in in dinosaurs and prehistory for you know the new generation yeah there, there's a there's so much potential there and tom like you were saying um with your closing points about how could they present aspects of dominion um taken from the tone of the novel and, and, and the way that that's presented and the way that that plays out you know they've they've we're, we're talking about a mini series but they've still got the opportunity with that third world film haven't they you know yeah. to to sort of look towards the book again and um and follow the same sort of feel that that presents mm. yeah exactly yeah well guys thank you very much what can i say i've been uh, i've been joined this evening by two very prominent experts within the Jurassic Park community <laughs> I really appreciate your input and uh, I've had a really really good time chatting the last third of this novel with you so thank you very much thank you yeah, thank you it's, it's been, been a lot of fun it's been really good thank you Ben find David's excellent Jurassic Park collectors channel Jurassic Collectibles where he showcases and gives in-depth reviews of many iconic Jurassic Park toys merchandise and high-end collectibles in addition to other wider dinosaur related products over on YouTube and find him under the same name on Instagram as well as at Jurassic Collect on Twitter. Tom is also a main contributor to Jurassic Collectibles covering many of the Jurassic World line in addition to being a contributor on the Jurassic Park podcast where he hosts the awesome segment the Innovation Centre alongside many other great contributions he can be found at Tom underscore Jurassic. Once again, I'd like to extend my thanks to David and Tom for joining me on this, the final episode of the current series of the Jurassic Park Book Club. However, we will be back soon to do it all over again, covering Michael Crichton's The Lost World Jurassic Park. This, his first ever sequel novel, takes the dinosaur-filled story to an entirely new direction. Look out for the preview episode coming down the line, and I'll be joined by Brad to announce the details of the next book club. So now is the perfect time to go and get yourself a copy of this outstanding sequel. I've again had some fantastic audio messages sent in by your good selves with your thoughts on this part of the novel. I've been overwhelmed with the positivity towards the book club from all of you fellow Jurassic Park fans to have taken the time to be part of this by sending in your audio messages and emails. So without further ado, let's go ahead and hear all your thoughts on this, the final part of the novel. Hello there, Connor here, uh, host of Dino DNA on the podcast, and I just want to share my thoughts on the third part of Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Um, this is seriously one of the best pieces of Jurassic media, in my opinion. From this point onwards, the book becomes an absolute thrill ride, and it was fantastic already, but um, it just ratchets up the tension as it goes along. I mean, you're already starting from the fifth iteration onwards with the river um, kind of sequence, the wrecks, uh, the waterfall... Um, all of that great stuff and, and yeah going behind the waterfall and all of that tension there that's already amazing all this expansion that we don't get to see in the film but then for me it from the point onwards of when they realize that they've been running on auxiliary power the entire time that is just the the best part of the book in my opinion the way the penny drops that the raptor fences have been off this whole time and then in in the distance they hear a scream it's just it, it's just incredible and then from that point onwards it just it, it goes up to 11 the bodies start you know coming in people going down to the maintenance sheds the raptors are tricking people they're they're using themselves as bait 
The stuff in the safari lodge, the race against time with the raptors biting through the bars on the roof. And that image is so terrifying. Imagine looking up through the glass, not being able to hear them, seeing these snarling creatures just tearing through these iron bars. And, and then they smash the glass you can hear their snarls and the, the saliva and the glass just showering over the bed just knowing that you know you've got 10 minutes to get the power on otherwise these things are inside the lodge they're hunting you down no matter what doors you go into they'll break them down they can get through that metal um, using themselves as bait for Ellie when she's running along the fence all the kills that they make it's just it's people versus raptors which is always great and there's great stuff that they kept from this section for the film like the raptors in the kitchen but there's just so much more here it's just so intense and it goes from all the bombastic action in the second part with the wrecks on the road and the stampede and then it comes down to humans versus raptors in the um visitor area and it's just so thrilling so this is definitely my favorite part of the book and uh and yeah so those are my thoughts on the third section i've been really enjoying the series looking forward to what's coming next and it was actually timed really well because i was reading through jurassic park already as it was and then this came along at just the right time so i could read along so um keep up the good work and uh looking forward to seeing what's next thank you bye hey guys uh it's mike and I just got done listening to the third part of the Jurassic Park uh, on tape. And uh, I wanted to bring up two things that I think um, are going to happen in Dominion uh, based off of uh, uh, the last third of the book. Um, the, the biggest thing to me is uh, I look forward to seeing uh, Henry Wu's death. Just an assumption that, you know, he, he's going to get taken out in, in Dominion um, based on the fact that he's made it through the entire franchise and in the book he gets uh, killed off that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen but um just my thought um and the other thing i think would be really cool is if uh, uh owen and claire when they're out looking for blue or wh whatever they where they meet up with alan grant and ellie is uh um somehow they find each other in a raptor cave uh, just like at the end of uh the novel. I think that'd be really, uh, pretty, pretty awesome. Um, so th those are the two thoughts that I had and, uh, this was fun and I, uh, look forward to ho uh, hopefully doing it for the lost world. Thanks. Bye. Hello again. This is Brady from Monterey, California. Reading the end of this novel totally got me excited to rewatch the first two movies. And in doing so, it made me realize just how much of this part of the novel survives in the second movie, the lost world. They work to document the dinosaur populations, discuss actually doing scientific studies of them as they interact and breed in an open environment, and I also came to the realization that Ludlow, Hammond's nephew in the film franchise, is much more like the Hammond of the novel. The Hammond of the movies had a glow, a love for the creatures that he helped to create. Hammond in the book, by the end, is already thinking about how he is going to abandon this park and start again on a different island. Money and control are his primary goals, and we see this reflected in the character Ludlow in the films, who tends to show fake compassion the people have died. It's all about his reputation and his success. But back to the novel. I think this third section of the book is actually more thrilling than what we got in the movie. Nedry's shutdown of the systems was nothing when compared to the fact that Jurassic Park, when rebooted, came back on the backup generators. The fact that nobody remembered this is a reflection of just how unprepared this park was to open. 
It even mentioned earlier in the book, when Mr. Arnold was mentally going through the glitch list, that this was the case. It's a known feature. Yet the complexity of the park leads to difficulty in managing and tracking these problems without significant checks and balances. But of course, just as they realize the problem, they hear screams in the distance as the staff fall victim to the escaped raptors. I think everything with the raptor attack on the compound is set up in such a brilliant way as it builds the tension bit by bit. Ellie comes into her own and saves the day a couple of times with her ideas and risky bravery. I love the tension of the group dealing with the sort of reverse lab tour as the raptors follow them backwards through the rooms that they had so recently, only a day ago mind you, been guided through. And my favorite part still has to be when Timmy is trying to get the power back on. They can see that the raptors are trying to break through the visitor bungalows on the tiny screen and hear their snarls until he finally gets the power back on at the last moment and fries the raptors as they are stuck in the steel bars of the ceiling window. I can see why Spielberg decided to frame the scenes out differently. The dying raptors and people are so much more gruesome in the book, but I still think the intensity of these scenes would be really cool to see in theaters. The fact that there are so many more workers on the island as raptor fodder also adds the sense of foreboding as we see how dangerous this situation is. It's very similar to what we finally got in Jurassic World when all the extras are taken out by the various dinosaurs. It's been so much fun to participate in this book club. Thank you so much for hosting so many voices here. I can't wait for whichever book is chosen next. Hello, it's Simon from Liverpool in the UK. Just giving my thoughts on the end of the Jurassic Park book, My Little Crichton. Again, fantastic end. And the addition of more more raptors made it so tense. The the idea and the, the thought of that raptor trying to be, get its get its way through the skylight and the the tension of of the of, of the other side going on trying to stop that was brilliant. I didn't I didn't like the thought of where they, they go talk about Malcolm dying, especially because we know that the next book, Michael Crichton's next book, Malcolm's Alive, uh, and I, I can't quite remember how he explains that away, but I'll be interested if we continue the, the book club, hint, hint, keep going with the book club, because it's brilliant. And um, I think the one thing that we missed was that epic epic finale, which in the film we get the T-Rex uh, at, at coming back into it. It would be great to have seen that again, but obviously not to be. The Raptors were enough in this. Um, John Hammond in the book for, fully deserved his comeuppance through the, the Comsognathuses and I think even though you still picture it as Richard Hammond towards the end there uh, Richard, uh, Richard Attenborough sorry towards the end there uh, I had to stop because I couldn't imagine poor old Dicky going through that getting that fate um, again fantastic book absolutely loved reading it all all the way through again from the beginning of this end bit with the river right the way through to the Raptors wreaking havoc wonderful book all, all told amazing you can see how it, why it's been adapted you can see why it's been changed for screen to make it a little bit more cinematic and to make it a little bit more child friendly if i think if this version had been put on uh, on film i wouldn't have watched it as a as a five-year-old don't think i would have been allowed it'd be great to see this this version adapted for maybe a more adult audience but what we got on film version was brilliant. The book's brilliant. It's great that they're, that they're the same but different. I absolutely loved it. And as I said, let's have uh, The Lost World next as our, our next book club to give me a bit more motivation to come away from the other books I'm reading. But for now, thank you very much for doing this. It's been absolutely fantastic. Bye. Hi, guys. This is Andreas, a.k.a. Jurassic.cc. Uh, 
so for this last part of the book, uh, I just have one thought. Um, the part where they go looking for the raptor nests and they uh, Grant says they, they have to count each and every one of them. I can't see a reason why. Uh, because they're, they're obviously blowing up the whole island. I just can't see why they need to count every one of them. Um, it just feels like Crichton <laughs> added that to make the book longer. I don't know. <laughs> feels a bit shoehorned in. And not not necessary. Anyone else thinks the same? <laughs> yeah, that's my thoughts. Bye. Hi, my name is Andrew, and I just wanted to reach out with my thoughts on Jurassic Park's fifth iteration to the end of the novel. Um, I really loved uh, the tension build up with the raft scene. Um, I love the moment with the two Dilophosaurus on the water's edge, and Rexy trying to break through the foliage while the raft was stuck. It was super intense. Um, I thought the aviary scene was great. I just felt it was better executed in GP3. Um, I really loved the Malcolm effect. The moment when you think the park is back up and operational just to realize that it was running on auxiliary power the whole time and now the raptors escaped. Uh, speaking of which, the raptors in this novel are terrifying. They're smart, they're cunning, they're deadly. Um, the kitchen scene was even scarier in the novel because everything was happening in the dark and Tim was using the night vision goggles. I mean, I really felt like they could have done that in the movie and that would have been so great. Um, the raptors are so vicious too. I mean, they, didn't they kill a baby raptor like right in front of them? It's nuts. Um, I really like the subplot of Gennaro, Ellie, and Grant trying to find the raptor's nest. And it was pretty cool to kind of echo what you guys had said in previous book club podcast. Um, it gave these animals an aspect of realism. There was a family group interacting with one another like you would see in the, the wild. And it felt more akin to the Lost World novel in that particular moment. It was pretty cool. Um, what else can I say? Um, I... I felt that Hammond's death was fitting. Um, he didn't take responsibility for anything throughout the novel and because he was blinded by his greed and ambition. Um, he was even blaming the kids in the end. I mean, he kind of deserved it, I guess. Um, I was kind of sad to see that the island was, was destroyed. However, it was interesting to see that there was potentially dinosaurs on the mainland. Um, to kind of conclude, I felt that, you know, I feel that all the movies have taken bits and pieces from the, this Jurassic Park novel. I mean, of course, the first one, definitely. But um, with the JP novel ending with dinosaurs getting out onto the mainland, I feel like it dovetails nicely with uh, the release of Jurassic Park Dominion. And I'm really interested to see what they might, what aspects they might take from this novel uh, that we might see again in Dominion. Uh, anywho, um, thanks again for everything you guys do. It's been really great. I love listening to the podcast. And, um, you know, I love this book and uh, it's definitely one of my favorites. Um, I love how the novel was different enough to feel fresh and exciting and familiar enough to be nostalgic. Uh, you know, 10 out of 10 would definitely recommend. So uh, thanks again for everything, and bye-bye. Uh, hey guys, what's going on? Brad here. Uh, just wanted to give my thoughts and insight. Uh, since I was on the last episode of the book club, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this portion because it's really, really thrilling. There's a lot going on here. Um, a lot of stuff that you've seen in Jurassic, right? There's a lot of, of, of different elements that you've seen throughout these movies, all of them. But they're all utilized in, or a lot of them are utilized in this portion, um, like the aviary. Really cool to see that used uh, a little bit differently, obviously, but it's still cool to see that you know used here. Um, I think there's 
there's a lot of Malcolm quotes and stuff like that that felt like just straight pulls, obviously straight pulls or near pulls from this portion of the novel. Um, uh, there was one portion where like Lex nearly died from like the Rex and it felt oddly like Tim's fence sequence, but just like a, kind of like the reverse. I feel like there's a lot of that too is like the swap of things, which we did see as well with it like um, with Ellie like leading people through um, the tunnel system instead of her being in the tunnel system. Um, what was it? There was uh, oh, obviously uh, Tim using the computers and stuff like that. So that was a pretty big one. And, and stuff like allusions to like fallen kingdom with the the nursery with like the different toys and things for the dinosaurs um i was like looking at i think Gennaro got bit on the arm and it was like flashing back to jurassic world it was a little different i think but um and then the, the rocket launch uh of the raptor i'm like oh my god that that is just straight out of jurassic world the rex breaking through the falls straight out of the lost world um so there's so many of those like little moments. So I, I was kind of blown away by how much was pulled straight from that. But at the same time, I'm constantly thinking about like the future and like, how can we utilize things? Um, so there was one thing that I was actually, I loved about this portion. It was it, later on in, in there when we're trying to get uh, around the lab or trying to get away from the Raptors and Grant is like injecting the eggs with this poison and then like kind of getting them over to the raptors so that they they eat them and stuff and it it was such a, a tense moment but that is like a thing i would love to see in the future i would really be interested in finding out like hey you know in dominion is there a moment where grant could like take these things and try to try to kill off these dinosaurs that are that are you know cornering them that could be pretty interesting and, and brutal to see um because we've gotten moments with grant and eggs you know, in these movies, the, the two that he's been in, uh, in the first one, he picked up the cracked eggs in the jungle, and then obviously the whole stuff with Billy and the raptors and those eggs. So uh, I feel like this next movie has to have something like that. Um, obviously, Wu's death from above with the raptors, like, I feel like, how do you go into Dominion and not have that outcome? That, that seems kind of crazy to me. So I feel like that's a, a decent possibility. Um, but overall, this portion feels really frantic to me, and in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. I know it kind of has negative connotation, but it's so back and forth between all kinds of stuff, and there's so much action here, so much like fast-paced action. And I think it's translated, obviously, not as intensely or not as um, not as deeply, I guess, in the film. There is a lot of back and forth between control centers and jungles and fences and all kinds of attack sequences in the movie as well but this takes it to a whole nother level and there's just like so much back and forth between the control rooms and maintenance sheds and the kitchen and the roof and it's just it's just intense the entire way through um and there's so much death which is like it feels you know obviously there's there's a lot of death in jurassic scattered throughout the lost world has a lot of iterations of like you know, uh, deaths like all over the place. Same with Jurassic World. There's like big impact moments of death throughout that. But like this one just felt like there was a lot of big moments where a lot of big characters are dying and you're like, 
this feels so impactful because a lot of these characters didn't die in the films um so that yeah it was really impactful because there was so much death there um i really loved there's a whole conversation between um uh, Mold, uh, no, I'm sorry, not Muldoon. Um, Malcolm and Hammond about like destroying the world, and I thought that was really interesting because I I, I was reading that and I'm like, how how could this have a parallel for the future? Um, because we're talking about disasters being averted, and obviously Ian and Hammond are disagreeing on all the points, and you know hammond's like well we, we basically luckily we didn't destroy the world there but um malcolm's like you couldn't do it if you wanted to um i did write there's a quote here um I, I did write it down it says uh let's be clear the planet is not in jeopardy we are in jeopardy we haven't got the power to destroy the planet or save it but we might have the power to save ourselves so i, I that was from ian malcolm and it was it was a really powerful obviously the, the whole quote was about power but like it was a powerful moment in the book and i was i feel like that's a quote that you you pull you know straight from from there and it, there's similar moments and i don't know there might be a similar moment directly in fallen kingdom line wise i don't know if it's an exact rip but there are moments like that that uh are are in fallen kingdom because it's similar situations but i could see that applied even more in dominion so hopefully he gets a chance to say even more stuff like that like uh, another one life would survive our folly it's like the it's kind of like a similar vibe to life finds a way but like just a different take on it it's it's really really interesting um i and and a surprising thing which i mean i shouldn't be surprised but there's a lot of jurassic world camp cretaceous vibes in this portion of the book lots of tunnel stuff uh, if you know if you've seen season two, any even season one, but there's a lot of tunnel stuff in season two, and uh, specifically when they actually find like a control center area where they're able to control different things throughout the park in that show, and one of those things is like the speaker system throughout the park. And in this in the book, you you do hear like Lex and Tim kind of struggling to utilize that, and they're messing around with it. And Hammond hears it out in the jungle or, or near his his bungalow and stuff. And I think that was really cool. And then they also had the capability of like playing Rex roars and like adding reverb and and different effects to it. And I thought that was cool because in Camp Cretaceous, they they were able to like turn on like a, a hologram in the outdoors of a Rex and, and have that thing roar at the face of a Rex, which was pretty cool. So I felt like there was a lot of similarities there. Um, the Raptor nest, I'm sorry, I'm going, probably going on very long here, but the Raptor nest was a really, really cool moment for me too, because that's like one of my oldest memories of this, of this franchise and this, this story of Jurassic, um, you know, from my mom giving me this book and her telling me about these, you know these really dark moments and and specifically this raptor nest thing and just the the terror of that kind of situation of being there and these all these creatures being around you but them not really noticing you but you still still being like extremely tense about that whole situation super cool and i, I love the fact that like they're trying to figure out what these raptors are doing in there it's it's like they're weird dinosaurs. They're 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 odd because they're moving in certain patterns. They they seem to like the darkness. They don't like the sunlight, and it just seems very creepy. It's it's not like the descent, but but kind of similar. <laughs> um, 
but uh and then there's the destruction i thought that was a really like powerful and and different than fallen kingdoms version of a destruction of that that island so yeah i think overall really really good portion i think i think my middle the middle part is still my favorite portion but this is right up there i think there's a lot of really really great stuff so yeah anyway uh i think that's about it for for my notes i did write all that stuff down so i was kind of going down the list i think i covered it all but um oh there was some river adventure talk that i wrote in there too i felt like the you know this the start of the the raft sequence was in the last the fifth iteration no no i'm sorry right before the fifth iteration and then it picked right up again and it was like oh this feels a lot like the the video game the jurassic park for sega and then also the uh the river adventure uh down in like orlando or the, what used to be in california and just like the dilophosaurs like spitting at or you know just like them being afraid of dilophosaurs on the ridge there so i, I felt like there was a lot of uh just a lot of uh, allusions to different jurassic things that have been used over time which is incredible so that's why my mind that whole time reading through this portion was like what could you use for dominion what could be used in the future so that's my summary there so uh hopefully you got something out of that and thanks to everybody else and thanks to ben so um on to the next Hi Ben and Brad, and everyone else taking part in this brilliant book club. It's Chris here from the UK in the IndieCast here again, chiming in for the final part of our group read of Jurassic Park the novel. Trying to sum up final thoughts for Michael Crichton's seminal work isn't easy, but I have to say after careful consideration I will be endorsing the book. It's the first time I've read a book after seeing a film and knowing that film so well too, so it's been a true roller coaster ride comparing in my mind the way scenes have unfolded, sometimes in similar ways, but lots of times quite differently. As I said before in my first section review, the copy of the book that I'm reading is from the Folio Society, with artwork by Vector That Fox, and I wanted to just mention the illustrations by this wonderful artist again, which are contained in this last section from the fifth iteration to the end. From the view of Tim seeing the Dilophosaurus, to the shock of the pterosaurs being in the first story for me, and then the monster view of the T-Rex looming large above the jeep outside its paddock. Vector's art captures the wow factor of this amazing story from every height. I really do hope if the Folio Society go on to re-release an edition of The Lost World, they bring back Vector that fox not only for continuity, but simply because nobody else could portray this Jurassic universe so well. Two particular things stuck out for me in the reading of this final section of the novel, and one was that of Robert Muldoon, a beloved character from my brother and myself as kids watching the movie, and he was rather differently portrayed as a sort of alcoholic in the, in the novel. And I found him across the pages to be more of a mix of a lot of the hunter experts from the, the movie franchise, such as Pete Postlethwaite's Roland Tembo from Lost World, and even Jurassic World Fallen Kingdoms tooth scavenging Wheatley, but it was a complete surprise to me that Muldoon actually survives the island in the, in the novel's story. They should all be destroyed. Ah, <laughs> Robert, Robert Muldoon, my game warden from Kenya. Bit of an alarmist, I'm afraid, but knows more about raptors than anyone. 
my other focus was always going to be the story's end wrapped as battle inside the visitor centre. How would it compare to the film, I wondered as I approached it. Well, it didn't disappoint, let's just say that. And once again, the page art by Vector That Fox on glorious green hue cast just the right mood lighting across the scene. There's so many other scenes and characters I could focus on, but I'd leave space for others to chime in too. But I have to say, I'm very much looking forward to the next iteration of the JP Book Club, uh, whatever that may be, and hoping that maybe we might be getting lost in a good book once again. Thanks Ben and Brad for running this monster read-along. I've had loads of fun and enjoyed every page turn. Count me in next time you bring back the book club to the Jurassic Park podcast. I'll be along for the ride. This is Chris A from the UK signing off and putting the book back up on the shelf. Hey Ben, hey Jurassic Park Podcast, it's Jurassic Dave 93 here. I'd just like to send in uh, my thoughts on the final third of the Jurassic Park novel we've been going through. Um, yeah, I quite like the, the last third. Um, it's very different. I believe like we spoke last time, um, the, the middle part of the book. It's a lot like the movie and this is just a, a lot different. Uh, a lot of scenes that we didn't uh, see in the movie adapted at all. Um, it's very action-packed. It just seems like we go from one scene to another, uh, whether or not it's uh, the T-Rex um, following Grant and the kids down the river to the uh, raptor attacks, and it's just one character after another uh, dodging or being uh, murdered by a velociraptor. Uh, which brings me to my next point uh, is just how violent um, this this last third of the novel is. Uh, there's a lot of gory, gruesome, detailed kills that we get. Um, there's not a lot of time to breathe in between all these events that are happening and the chase uh, through the lodge with the raptors. Uh, and aside from the action, I would say Malcolm is probably my favorite part of this last part of the novel. Uh, I feel that sometimes he's sort of the voice for Crichton uh, to show his displeasure at where science is going, uh, where humanity is taking science in this uh, present age, which I still think holds up, you know, 30 years later. A lot of the problems uh, with science and, and things the way we live our life on this planet are still relevant. Um, Hammond, I just thought, was an, an amazing part. Just, you know, playing off of Malcolm, uh, just how they do not overlap at all. Uh, Hammond just does not agree. He's so thick-headed and just cannot understand what Malcolm is saying to him. Um, yeah, just I quite enjoyed you know, seeing just how arrogant uh, Hammond was, how he wasn't even really there when everybody needed him. He kind of, you know, was recluse, you know, to himself and in the end ended blaming everyone else for what had happened with his park. And, you know, the ending of the book is just a little odd, I feel like, when we were first reading it. They wrap up the part with the raptors and then uh, they get to the part where they decide that they're going to uh, count the raptors with the nest. And I thought it was a little weird, but I also enjoyed how they interjected a lot of science into this, you know, bring it back to animal behavior and how other animals act with their nesting and everything. So overall, I really liked it. Uh, again, thanks for doing this segment. Uh, I really enjoyed listening. I enjoyed being a part of it. And I hope everyone else had as much fun rereading this this old book. It's 30 years now, but it's nostalgic to me. Uh, it goes right to the roots of Jurassic Park. But I can't wait till we get to the next one. Hopefully Lost World comes up soon. But thanks a lot. I'll talk to you guys later. Hi guys, Brad here for the third time with some feedback. 
for the third sequence, no, the third part of Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park. I think I really prefer the third section of the novel uh, the best. They get the park back online. Uh, we find Nedry and everything seems to be going great until the power goes out once again, just as uh, Arnold lights that final cigarette and uh, he thinks everything's back under control. And there's the expanded ending, which I'll say now is great, but after re-listening to it, I have some issues. I love the scenes between Muldoon and Gennaro, uh, together and finding Nedry uh, and knowing what he'd done. Would You Like to Live Dangerously is still a line that um, I use almost weekly. Uh, it's, it's one of those little lines from the novel that I absolutely love and do use a lot of the time. And I would have just loved to see Bob Peck walk away from Jeep 12, uh, kneel down on one knee in the grass and fire that launcher at the T-Rex. I reckon it would have been a really iconic moment for Jurassic Park, but sadly, maybe Dominion, we get to see it. Sadly, without Bob Peck, but uh, <laughs> Muldoon's a drunk. That's fantastic. I just love that. Um, <laughs> this big game hunter, and uh, he knows he knows when to throw a few back. The Avery sequence, uh, I, I think I prefer the JP3 version. I love how there's an opening big enough for the raft to just drift into the aviary, but it's not big enough for the uh, pterodactyls to get out, or cerodactyls, I should say. And they get to the lodge and see the windows boarded up, and oh no, this this isn't going to work. We'll just go back to the raft. <laughs> just because the windows are boarded up doesn't mean there's no power and uh, other stuff inside or a phone. So they seem to have cut the corner there. We also get the full. Life finds a way, and all Malcolm's dialogue that we get the dinner room, or dinner room, lunch room scene uh, in this third half as well. The first between him and Ellie, then between him and uh, I forget, I think it's Hammond and Gennaro or Harding in the um, his stupid state in the uh, in the lodge. His character's similar in the Lost World, um, and this is one thing that really irks me about the Malcolm character in both novels is he seems to know everything. Or yet he doesn't explain several times he could have said, hey, your computers aren't reading all the dinosaurs, or your power's not running at full power, you're still an auxiliary or something, and we could have got around it, but he's obviously wanting the park to fail. And it's the same in the, in the Lost World too. He, yep, dunno. Oh yeah, well, I think the answer's just behind this door. Oh look, there's power on, let's go and do that, and not even worry about what <laughs> his original thought was, so... I can't wait until we get that, to that in The Lost World. But I am glad Jeff Goldblum brought something a little bit different to the character in the, in the movie and uh, makes it a little bit more likeable. It's it's great to get more Dilophosaur. Uh, the two mating by the stream or by the jungle river is fantastic. We haven't had enough of the Dilophosaur in the films and I feel it's if it's going to be a Dominion, it's going to be shoehorned, which is another, another gripe, but we'll get there next year when that movie comes out. I'm not a real big fan of the ticking clock. The raptors are on the boat heading to the mainland. From what we've seen at the start of the film with the compies, animals were already getting off the island to the mainland. It's not explicitly said, but I always thought that these weren't the first raptors to be making their journey to the, to the mainland or migrating. So I don't know why we have this ticking clock. Yes, it's something to keep Grant and the kids motivated to get back to the visitor's compound, but we only get back there to find <laughs> there's no power and everyone that knows about how to start the, the computers up is dead so 
yeah, I don't, I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, it's, I'm glad it was cut from the uh, from the film. And then we do get to that final, the final uh, plot points after Power's restored, Tim's playing for the computer and not Lex. Mr. Gennaro, we need to clean up your mess and find out exactly how many raptors are born. We're going to go find the nest, count the eggs. It's never explicitly said that they're calling the military for help. They're just calling for a helicopter. So I don't know why, one, yes, we're going to find the nest, work out how many animals have been born everything else. But then to rapidly bring the military in to just make it all insignificant. It doesn't really matter. Once those choppers come in and pick, pick everyone up, it doesn't really matter anymore. And as much as Grant was backflipping saying, Mr. Gennaro, you're the cause of it, or you're going to make up for your mistakes or what you've done. As soon as the military gets there, no one throws him under the bus. No one says they're in charge. That's weird. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. And it just feels like a rush ending. But I do, I do still like parts of it. And not just that helicopter flying off into the sunset that we got in Jurassic Park. At least there's a little bit of closure here. The island's destroyed, even though firebombing an island probably wouldn't destroy everything. But that's a completely different, uh, a different argument to have be had another time. And the visitors, or the VIPs, being put up in a hotel in Costa Rica and questioned about what happened there. And obviously, people in the helicopter seen animals. There's a lot more going on towards the end than we've got in the last film. But uh, those are some of my thoughts, and <laughs> I could have gone on for hours about this novel. It is the novel that started it all. It's fantastic. Personally, I prefer The Lost World more, but that's just me. And I can't wait until we get into that in a couple of weeks' time. But I hope these episodes coming on, coming out to the community has got you into the book, got you reading the book once again if you haven't read it for a long time, because there's some great material in there. And people are realising the differences, what's being used for future or future movies post-Jurassic Park, and what's being reused. So that's, that's great, great to see. And, I hope more in the community are reading the books. But uh, that's it from me. I've been Brad. Can't wait to talk about The Lost World. And uh, I'll talk to you all later. Bye. Hi, it's Jared. And there are so many, many things I'd absolutely love to talk about and discuss from the final third of Jurassic Park. But I'll contain myself to just a few short particular topics here. First off, I'm very intrigued that the Dilophosaur pair that uh, Grant and the kids had encountered on the river were performing a possible mating ritual, despite uh, not being one of the species that Wu had actually had spliced with the amphibian filler. So I wonder what happened there. Were the Dilos actually on a temperature sex determination, uh, determination system rather than the chromosomal system um, to determine male and female? If that's the case, then perhaps they had incubated the Dilo eggs at a temperature where they could have had a near 50-50 chance of getting males or females. Or could Wu splicing have somehow accidentally created alternate, alternative sex chromosomes with some kind of epigenetics coming into play determining male and female that they hadn't anticipated? And if, and if that's the case, then maybe something like that could also explain some of the breeding dinosaur populations we would later see on Sorna years later? Or could they have actually created something akin to uh, certain species of, of parthenogenic whiptail lizards who still perform 
certain mating behaviors even though they can self-fertilize their own eggs. So a lot of questions there that we never get resolved. And also I do and also um the, the and in a sense I also kind of ties into Wu's um, near final moments where he saw the breeding animals as a sign that he put he had put all the pieces back together correctly in likelihood he probably assembled their genomes in a way that they would still function as quote-unquote normal animals regardless of the mutant alleles he had created and uh, you have to appreciate the irony of how Wu and Hammond met their ends Wu by the animals that he ultimately um, I mean that had ultimately defied all of his genetic controls and safeguards and Hammond the sort of egomaniacal multi-billionaire to meet his end with essentially a uh, whimper or a whisper. <clears throat> and also, um, I absolutely love uh, Malcolm's uh, destroying the world debate with Hammond. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, that moment, I mean, like, that moment right there is also so incredible and uh, deep. And it's just so incredible and filled with uh, deep thinking that it's part of what makes Jurassic Park and its sequel, The Lost World, so amazing to read again and again because Michael Crichton is like inviting you to actually think about the concepts and everything he has presented whether you're applying it to the scenarios just in the novels or if it's even in, or even on a real life uh, scale <clears throat> or setting as for the ending there's so much I want to talk about and speculate about the raptors but I'll keep it to just and keep to just question uh, the question as to just how many animals could have uh, been stowing away to the mainland. How long have the raptors and compies been stowing away on the supply ships? Months or even years? Could there already be a breeding, po- I mean, be a population of adult raptors and compies or other small species like the Othnelia that have managed to establish themselves in the wilds of mainland Costa Rica and beyond? <clears throat> I mean, between uh, these questions and Malcolm's dialogue throughout the entire book, it really embodies that uh, the most iconic line from the Jurassic uh, franchise itself, whether in the books or in the films, life finds a way in a very powerful and very poetic kind of, well, a very powerful and poetic way. And um, with that said, I wanted to thank uh, Brad, Ben, and everyone else who has participated in Jurassic Park Book Club. And I'm really looking forward to when we ultimately will start uh, The Lost World. Thank you guys very much. And until next time, this is Jared. Goodbye. Hey, Jurassic Park Podcast. It's Kiko again for the final segment, the third segment of the Jurassic Park Book Club. Uh, Sad to see this end, but I'm excited for this part because... Uh, I really enjoyed this part of the book, too. Um, So, before I start, I'd just like to mention that I forgot to mention in my last recording the whole Jurassic Park river, the river raft chase T-Rex scene, and the whole plot of Alan, Lex, and Tim trying to get to the visitor center, like, going through the jungle and everything. I really... That's my favorite part of the book by far, and I'm sad to see that not get adapted to the movie. Hopefully, maybe in a future movie, who knows. But 
for, uh, first of all, Malcolm and Hammond's death. Now, I was not expecting that when I first read the book, um, Malcolm and Hammond are the opposites that both die in the end. And, um, I was not expecting Malcolm, and hopefully they do not do that for Dominion. And I, for Hammond, uh, or I hope they don't do that for Dominion, because I really love Jeff Goblum's character. Uh, now Hammond, he already died, so they can't adapt that to the movie. Um, but that whole compy part where he rolls down the hill, breaks his ankle, and then compies come and get him. That was interesting because they explained, like, the toxin and everything, and then they adapted that to Camp Cretaceous. I was so happy that they adapted that to Camp Cretaceous. Um, so, to, to say there's a lot of stuff they didn't adapt. Like, I'm just gonna quickly say these scenes. The Jurassic Park Visitor Center or Lab, uh, or the Lab where the where Alan Grant injects the toxin to the eggs and then feeds them to the raptors that was cool and suspenseful and unfortunately they didn't adapt that to the movie hopefully a future movie but um also the raptor burrow they didn't adapt that to the movie where they put the gas bombs in there the gas grenades and all the raptors in there died. That was a cool scene. Maybe they'll do that in Dominion. That's, that is more possible to see in Dominion. I could see that happening in Dominion. Uh, then Dr. Wu's death. I can definitely see that happening in Dominion. They're probably going to do that. Um, that was very interesting. Um, Basically, Hammond and Wu both got their comeuppance, and uh, they went out. Then they nuked. At the end, they nuked the island, and all the dinosaurs on there are gone. But then, the title for the next book, Something Has Survived. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. Of course, a huge thanks goes out to Ben uh, for the Jurassic Park Book Club, and not just this episode, but all the episodes so far. And uh, I love this thing. I love the insight, the analysis, uh, the discussion. All of it is so awesome, so intriguing, and it's just the beginning. Yes, we finished Jurassic Park, but there's so much more on the way. I know Ben teased the future, so we will be discussing The Lost World soon. So please keep an ear out for that, uh, you know, when we, when we can give you some more details there. But I am very excited to move forward. Sad to see Jurassic Park go, but definitely excited to see the future of this segment and how it evolves and how it changes and what kind of conversation we're going to hear. So please stay tuned for that. And, and obviously, a big thanks to Tom and to David for, for joining Ben here today to discuss the novel. That's the stuff that makes this segment great, is hearing from 
the contributors, the people, the guests, and also uh, all of you guys as well. So thank you to everybody who sent in an audio clip or or any anything uh, in regards to this portion of the novel. It is such. Uh, a really fun portion of the novel, and I loved hearing everybody's insights. So thank you so, so much. But I think that's about all I have for you guys today. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. Stay safe out there. Be kind to everybody you come into contact with. And we'll see you all again next week. I'm going to go ahead and hand it off to myself for the outro. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to give us a follow over on Twitter at Jurassic Park Pod and myself at Brad Jost. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to join the Jurassic Park Podcast group on Facebook. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, our website, or wherever else podcasts are found. So be sure to follow along. Also, don't miss our live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage, and much more on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will read your reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com, where you'll find today's episode's show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. If you want to get a hold of us, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. We're always looking for new segments, contributors, mailbag submissions, or anybody who just wants to say hello. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Make sure to be kind to everybody and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening and enjoy.